Bonzilla presents Star Trek. Each week, we warp speed into the world of Star Trek. This week, an original series villain returns to bring the franchise up to new heights. It's 1982's Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to Bond Zilla Presents, ready to talk about another edition of the Star Trek franchise. I'm Nick. I'm Will. And uh, it's been, uh, I just want to, I've said it before, but I've been very happy with the response so far to Bond Zilla Presents. I think that we've had a lot of uh, listeners um, and a lot of our fan base has embraced these new franchises that a lot of our, uh, both Bond and Godzilla fans have sort of embraced, you know, and Kong might be a obvious one, but I'm very happy that people are, are very into these Star Trek episodes as well. It's been very exciting, very fun. Yeah, no, I mean, um, you know, it's kind of like a nice, fun, little, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. You know, just kind of nice to kind of like just dive into different types of movies, definitely. Um, and uh, especially with today's, um, was like the first time I was kind of like, yeah, like now I think, and you know what it really was? I think the, the little pause we did in the podcast was a, was a nice break. It was mm-hmm. just like a, it was, it was just a really good break. And it's kind of like, you know, just casually just kind of sitting back and watching movies. And it's also like, Nick knows this more than anybody else, but like, I've been a little bit more busy, good busy in my personal life. So to actually just sit down and watch a movie like you ever get that feeling nick where it's just like you just sit down and like you just watch a movie just good yes yes like i could, uh, I could just never not like movies that's my thing and like you know uh i've been uh recently enjoying motion pictures with with my girlfriend and it's just nice to you know just sit down and watch something and, and just kind of remind yourself something you've seen before to remind yourself of why you like it so much and something new if it's something you haven't seen um to like really discover something you know or discover you know what's good or bad about it you know like i i i yeah. i got to sit down i, I, I mean yeah. oh what all i was gonna say is because like so obviously like we won't get into it but like the biggest relevant you know like entertainment thing for nick and i has definitely been like at least new thing has been uh wandavision recently mm-hmm. with a the newest uh, Disney Plus uh, uh, installment into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and you know, and and obviously, you know, we Nick and I have been having a blast, like talking week uh, to week um, about that. But you know, that's kind of like you know, it, it is in that like weekly TV, and you know, the conversation about weekly TV, the water cooler type of conversation. And, you know, Nick has been teasing me about, like, you know, me getting acclimated to that because I can be difficult about that format. But but then when I, like, I, I just, for me, I just sit down and I, like, I, I sit on my couch and I eat dinner and I just watch a movie. 
And even if I like put my phone down and I'm just watching it like from start to finish, there's just nothing like it. I but I, I think that's actually a very interesting thing because that's also been partially me is like I've always been and I, I've talked about this from a writing perspective before with other people, but also from a watching perspective, I've always been like a movie guy in terms of just like a story. Like with television, like, yes, I have my series I love. Like I love, you know, Lost. But like a lot of the TV that I like is actually not serialized. It's like The Muppet Show and Seinfeld, you know, which has some serialization and like Phineas and Ferb, like stuff that you can just kind of put on and watch and you don't have to like necessarily keep up with week to week or it's like older stuff where you can just pick and choose whatever you want to watch. So it's been interesting, like with Wanda, like it was interesting with WandaVision to just kind of go through it. But it's also just interesting to just you know, watch movies, you know, it's like, cause I also had a situation where like, I finally used like a Christmas gift card and I bought like a bunch of Blu-rays that I've been, you know, meeting and stuff, stuff that I, I have seen and stuff, stuff that like I haven't seen in a while. And so I'm like very excited. And like, I, you know, I was about to say, I shared with my girlfriend, uh, the 1966 Batman movie and just to kind of rediscover all of its nuances oh, was, it's was so, so much good. fun. So much fun. Yeah, I, I think for me, it's like, it's why I always kind of like, I, I just gravitate toward, at least as like my pure, there's no way to say this without sounding like I'm like kind of like shitting on TV, which I'm not at all. Because mm -hmm. the thing is like, I think in terms of my viewing with a lot of TV, it's like, especially if it's more bingeable, like if it's like all of it's there. If I'm like sitting there after work, like I may get through two or three episodes and then I, I do kind of get that sense of like, this is a great show. Like, this is awesome. This is really good. But two or three episodes and I'm like, yeah, I should probably get some work done before bed. So I'll just like, I'll save the next two episodes for tomorrow. And, and then it's good. Like I liked Queen's Gambit. Thought it was excellent. But there's just something about like with today's movie, I just kind of sit down, just grab something to eat. And then I just sit down and watch it from beginning to end just get a complete story. And this is just me gushing about the medium at this point, but it's like, I, I did just kind of like, yeah, every, every, every time I get the chance to do it, I never regret it. Even, I, I, if, it's, even if it's movies that I've, I've like seen, like with today's episode. I mean, it's just like I said, like there was nothing to me, like when Disney plus first came and I was kind of like, had like the, all those weird sixties and seventies and eighties Disney movies at like my fingertips for like the first time. Like that was just a joy to have because it's again, just these new two hour, hour and a half experiences. And I think there is something of a purity of just like watching that movie front to back and getting that whole story and the characters and the arcs and just, you know, I've always enjoyed the movie medium. And I think that's why we do this podcast partially is, you know, not just that we are passionate about, franchises but that we just love the medium of movies it's why we do what we do absolutely absolutely so that brings us to today's episode yes a movie a motion picture but not star trek the motion not picture. the motion picture not the not the motion picture because that was our last star trek episode no we're taking a look at the second star trek film uh for theaters um which would make sense because there was no star trek movies for television at this point or ever really i guess technically speaking um we are talking about 1982's star trek 2 the wrath of khan insert khan here by the khan! way for people that 
you know know the movie that is a hundred percent the quote and i do not care how long i need to make that quote that that whole scene is getting in there um (laughs) but uh yeah um so this one will be interesting because obviously i i've seen um i've seen this movie on a copy of it and um i'll also probably be able to give a little bit of my own personal insight into when as you're talking about the making of this film because uh one thing i did get a chance to do before hopping on is listening to quite a bit of the commentary mm-hmm. for the movie yeah um and i got like some insight into the director that i thought was pretty interesting yes um but obviously kind of like going into this movie just like my history with it it's like basically the empire strikes back of in terms of like the how it's talked about yeah like and 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 very similar and when i was talking about the motion picture in which i kind of knew about the legacy and what people thought about it yeah um this movie was very similar everybody saying like this is like the best one this is like all like the kind of like the cultural things that you know about it cinematically or from this film um and uh so and so i went into it with all that type of knowledge and um and here we are yeah and for me it's like because i mean this is my introduction to star trek this is the first star trek thing i ever saw and it was just again just the reputation and the concept and just even like i didn't know anything just the sort of that image of Khan on like the poster and like the the blu-ray and everything like that like that was just intriguing enough to me where it's like at a point where i you know my my knowledge of star trek was basically pop culture what you could take from from track and pop and general pop culture this was what kind of spurned my initial foray into the franchise and it would take years later for me to do the full watch and get all the movies and everything but for a long time this was just like my anchor into the star trek world i think for me more so than anything i knew the poster yeah before i saw the movie it was just kind of like that Ooh, who's this like mystery like a uh, desert man yes uh, exactly is that con i'm sure yeah. it is because he's in the title before so we, anyway the making of the movie everybody we, hated the first one and then they made this one <laughs> basically but there's a little bit there's a, some fun to be had about this one uh-huh, i do yeah, want to yeah. say that this is one of those movies where like the big i guess twist or the big moment in the movie is kind of so famous that i don't need to say spoilers but it is something that's going to be coming up so listen if you've never seen this movie and you know nothing about it just watch it. Just go watch it and come back and then listen to us talk about it. It's worth just digging into. Spoilers. Go. You won't be disappointed. Yeah. Go, go get your free month subscription to Paramount well, Plus. Well, I mean, I guess you could be disappointed if you have, if for some reason you haven't seen this movie and you strangely have very specific opinions on what should happen to certain characters. Then you may be disappointed. But other than that, you won't be disappointed. Right. Uh, so I just wanted to get that out of the way. Again, use your get a free Paramount Plus subscription and go watch Star Trek 2 and maybe other stuff on the service. I don't know. All right. So Star Trek 2, The Wrath of Khan. So it's post the release of Star Trek The Motion Picture from ni- the end of 1979. We're into 1980 now. And just to review, the film was technically a great success and made... Uh, uh, you know, 139 million at the box office, but on that 50, about 50 million dollar budget for the motion picture, was not as much of a money maker as Paramount was hoping. They were hope we're looking for Star Wars and Close Encounter numbers, and you know, we're talking about like Moonraker came out that same year, made 200 million, all that sort of stuff. Like you know, uh, Alien 
you know, wasn't made much, but it had a smaller budget. So made a bigger profit, all that sort of stuff. So Paramount was kind of in like a rock and a hard place sort of where it's like they were disappointed with the Star Trek results, but they knew they had something that there was a response to the movie. There was a response that people went to go see it and it did make money. But now, you know, the rep, the motion picture already had sort of this mixed reputation. So did they squander that potential? So Paramount was sort of wrangling with what do we actually do with Star Trek now? We have to obviously have to make another movie. We have to rectify this. But how do we go about doing this? One person who wasn't having this issue was Gene Roddenberry himself, because Gene Roddenberry was already trying to get into the door at Paramount to pitch his next Star Trek movie which in his mind was the Star Trek true uh, have to go back in time to kill JFK after the Klingons prevent the assassination of JFK and mess up the timeline. Uh, and Paramount was essentially like, all right, somebody has to be the scapegoat for what happened with the motion picture. Can I, can I say one thing about it where... That is 100% the voice of a creator who is unaware of what the material actually means mm -hmm. outside of his or her own view. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because, like, that is one of those things, like, for good or for ill, like, fans of the show, do they really want to see them go back and kill JFK? Now, as a creator, you're probably like, well, that's like kind of like an interesting story to tell. But like as a fan, like, do you really want... So it's just like, it, it, it strikes me as somebody who doesn't really like, is not aware of like, that people actually want to like have fun with these characters. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, for so. sure. I, I think it's... Uh, Ron Berry's, again, just an interesting sort of cat is is the term I would use. So basically, what kind of happens is Paramount needs a scapegoat. Paramount needs a scapegoat, someone they can blame the motion picture on. Because it's certainly not Paramount's fault. You know, Paramount needs to, like, be on top of everything. It's certainly not Robert Wise's fault because he's a legendary director and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So the blame internally for the movie falls onto Gene Roddenberry. There's a lot of just, like the emphasis on not necessarily having like a, like an actual villain to be like the, you know, the ship and this mysterious ship that the, you know, Roddenberry's perfectionism and production delays and just how much was like, you know, written about the movie and like in the script was all in Roddenberry's hands. And, and so basically Paramount offered him this one of two options. Essentially they were like, you either are going to like work tandem with another producer or we're going to like basically give you no, like no true creative input. You're going to be an executive consultant as um, yeah. Executive consultant is a technical term he has on this movie. Uh, and Ron Berry was initially like, he played hardball and said, I, I want my vision or nothing. And he got nothing essentially. Uh, but Paramount was still fearful that if they just kicked him to the curb entirely, that the fans would riot because the, Roddenberry still had this great connection to the fans and great connection to the Star Trek community. So basically they were like, okay, well, we're going to keep him on as executive consultant, like in his contract, he's going to have some options to give notes, to give his input. But essentially everybody at this point was like, but we'll, we'll let him have his say. Maybe he'll come up with a good idea or two, but we're going to do, we're going to go in our own direction. So now there needs to be a new lead in the Star Trek franchise and someone to take control and make a movie that is going to make money. 
uh, and preferably on a much lower budget than the motion picture. And this is where we are introduced to Harve Bennett, uh, who is going to be with these films for quite a while. Uh, so we're going to be hearing his name a lot. So Harve Bennett was a television producer by trade. Uh, his most famous work up until he came to Paramount was his hand in producing The Six Million Dollar Man and its spinoff, The Bionic Woman. Uh, and he was pretty much a major TV executive. Uh, he did a lot of kind of major stuff for Universal before moving over to Columbia Pictures Television and eventually onto Paramount Television. Now, Harve was hired as a television producer, his role as he was, you know, signed the contract was he was going to produce television shows in, in the, uh, Aiken two six million dollar man and bionic woman. And even, you know, other stuff that he had produced for Paramount television studios to sell to networks. Uh, but one day Harve was, uh, called into an office just was like, Hey, we need you. We, they, they need you over in, you know, whatever conference room. And in the office were, Barry Diller, Paramount Executives Barry Diller, Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Kratzenberg, and Gulf and Western head Charles Bloodhorn. Uh, Gulf and Western, of course, was at the time the parent company of Paramount. And this group basically said, we're interested in making you the lead of our next Star Trek motion picture project. Um, that we're looking for someone to take control of the Star Trek franchise and to avoid all the issues that we had on the motion picture. And, you know, Bennett said, you know, I saw the motion picture, you know, basically he thought what everybody else thought. The effects were very good, but the movie was boring and, and there was just a lack of something. Basically, they kind of go back and forth. And eventually, uh, Charles Bloodhorn put, put it all on the table when he asked, quote, can you make this movie for less than 45 fucking million dollars? And then Bennett replied instantly off the top of his head, where I come from, I can make five movies for that. <laughs> And off of that, he was essentially like, you're hired. We're taking you away from Paramount Television. You are now here to make us uh, a money-making Star Trek movie. So Harv immediately was like, okay, this is great. I have this new opportunity. But some problems already arise. One, he's already shoehorned the film into having a much lower budget. Which, I mean, again, Harv was used to working. He was used to working in television, which, you know, he's making... You know, it's important to note, like, he was making stuff like Six Million Dollar Man and Bionic Woman look as good as it could for television on sort of these lower television budgets, especially for that period where, you know, television doesn't have a lot of money pouring pouring into it necessarily. So now he's like, okay, well, I'm going to have to really be creative already with how I make this movie. And the other thing is, like, I've agreed to the Star Trek project without seeing any of the original series. He had no knowledge of Star Trek other than the motion picture and again just sort of the some of the stuff that like you know was already in kind of the pop culture air with star trek so bennett's plan was he asked paramount to give him every single episode of the original series and that he was going to binge it he was just going to watch him in a row just kind of get a sense of it and while he was watching it he got a couple things where it's like these are the things we need to do one we the the movie the original movie lacked a villain as he went through the series and saw the various villains of the Star Trek franchise you know you know even from episode 1 with with uh, Gary Mitchell as Kirk's friend just all the different things that they encounter and all the different people and gods and stuff he's like that that first movie just lacked someone that like you know Kirk could monologue at or something like that they just lacked 
like a presence, something you could really root against. So he Bennett was like, all right, well, let's let's find ourselves a villain. And while he was watching the series, like, well, let's take a villain from the series. Let's take an opponent from the series, connect it back, you know, make it more connected to the original series than the motion picture was necessarily. And that can get the Star Trek fans excited again. And their excitement will only build up excitement generally. And we can kind of be like, hey, this character is coming back. And once he got to the first season episode, Space Seed, uh, which featured, of course, uh, Ricardo Montalban, his first appearance as Khan Nudian Singh. He immediately thought, okay, the ending sets it up where you Spock him in the ending. They drop him off on SETI Alpha 5 and they're like, I wonder what this civilization will look like in 100 years. They've already set up, oh, there is something here. It's an interesting villain, can bring in all the you know eugenics and, and he's a powerful guy. So he's like, we're going to zero in on getting Ricardo Maltaban uh, onto this movie. Now, when I'm I'm kind of interested about this choice, I've always been fascinated about this because I think that a choice like this is a dime a dozen in the modern era of the whole meta continuity, like long, like let's take like a, like a storytelling device from like an episode or a movie that we did a couple years ago. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, yeah. it's kind of like the, because of like the whole cinematic universe thing, it's kind of like the go-to now for mm-hmm. better or for worse. But like, I'm always fascinated that at the time, like that cross pollination of really getting into the minutia of the fandom and like doing the trans, a direct translation, like let's take a plot line from a different medium and put it into this because you kind of by that nature already make it somewhat for the fans of the material. Now, I'm not saying that as a bad thing. I actually think that enriches the material as long as you make it also accessible to everybody else. So I've always been, that was like the big thing. Because everybody knows Wrath of Khan. But like the big other wrinkle to that was when I found out that it was like part of like an episode from the original series. And they're expanding off of that was very fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think it's it was an interesting choice, but a good choice for a couple reasons. Like obviously, also uh, one of the other reasons for that choice was not just well. I guess there was a couple reasons. One, Khan was a very memorable villain of the original series. That that episode does come up a lot, just because not just of Khan, but the whole lore of the 1990s eugenics wars and sort of the the superior intellect and everything like that. And, you know, again, for, for stuff on reruns, you know, again, no DVDs or anything like that at this time, no video. Like, that was an episode that would pop up and people knew. People did know just in general. Like, he's one of the main, you know, people knew kind of like Khan and the Guardian of Forever. And it's sort of the, the, that's one of the things that kind of did seep in is like one of the classic Star Trek foes. Another thing was it already gave Bennett an edge on the writing process that they didn't have to come up with some, you know, what villain would be great. We already have our character. Let's figure out what he's been doing since the original series, how we can get him back into things. Boom. And the last thing is between the period of that original episode and the making of this movie, Ricardo Montalban's star had risen because what was Ricardo Montalban doing at this time? A very popular television series called Fantasy Island. Uh, which uh, we've talked about before with uh, his co-star Tattoo. Um, well, it, it, and it's funny because I remember that was like a, a very, that was brought up in the commentary track as I was listening to it, was that it was, it, it's very fascinating that this was st- 
still during that period where that crossover between your TV stardom and your movie stardom was in conflict still. So even though I, I believe the director didn't have anything too bad to say about it, it is funny that they thought about that, like, ooh, like, you know, is like the star of like this TV show. How is that going to clash with like the star of our movie? Nowadays, it's like, we got the guy from Breaking Bad. Yeah. And that's why you like, I mean, Godzilla was like that. Godzilla was all like, we got Walter White. That's why you want to see this movie. <laughs> yes. Um, but yeah, so I, I think that Bennett, because Bennett, but it's funny because you're talking about like Nicholas Meyer's perspective, which we'll talk about in a minute. Mm-hmm. He was definitely like a film guy. He was a film writer. He's a film dude. Where Bennett, you know, comes from TV. So he's seeing Ricardo Montalban on TV every week in this very popular show. And it's like, well, of course, like he's a star. Like he's just, that's the nature of it. Uh, and the last decision that Bennett makes is to avoid the motion pictures pretending that these characters haven't aged, that the film should have some sort of sense of the actual aging of these characters. Cause the room, you know, the story had already gone around about like how Shatner was on basically for the motion picture, a starvation diet and like wore like a corset to make him appear younger. Bennett was like, we're not doing that. Let's formulate a story around their age. Let's formulate a story about them as they are now. Uh, Bennett also gets on board a college buddy and a commercial director, uh, Robert Salin, who he trusted to just be like, here, you direct commercials. You can do things quick. We need to make this movie cheap. I know your, your, your stuff. And immediately also hired Michael Miner, who was the art director for the original series and the motion picture to kind of get the ball rolling on everything. Uh, so they, Bennett is just basically like before they kind of get anything, uh, he just starts writing a treatment. His original treatment is War of the Generations, where uh, Kirk and the crew uh, interfere with a rebellion on some distant world and find out that it's his son leading the rebellion against Khan and, and father and son team up to, to defeat Khan. Basically a very simple story. But immediately he was like, okay, now that I've written this story, this is going to be way too expensive. We're going to go have to build big sets and big built things, you know, and, and make this other planet. And it's just like too, too much. So he hires um, uh, screenwriter Jack B. Saward, uh, who was an avid Star Trek fan to basically, you know, discuss like what the, the options would be. And this is sort of, again, the first inklings of this idea where, okay, what if the most of the movie took place on the ships? you know, the various ships of Star Trek because the plan already was in place was to save money by reusing all the motion picture sets, which was reusing all the phase two sets. So they're like, okay, well, we can make, you know, the Enterprise, we'll just update a little bit, put some new sort of screens in there for for easier, you know, shooting of like video and stuff like that. And then, oh, well, we can redress this and make this another ship in the fleet. Oh, we can use this for another ship. So basically, you're like, okay, well, let's just make a movie where we can sort of make a movie mostly on the Enterprise or mostly on various ships. So this initial draft um, is called the Omega Syndrome, uh, where there was an idea that Bennett had about the ultimate weapon, the Omega system that uh, was stolen by Khan. But Solward was like, well, that's not very Star Trek. Like the Federation just wouldn't build a weapon like this. Uh, so we need to figure out something to do. And it's art director Miner who says, well, what if it was like a terraforming type device? Like what if it was built for peace and then Khan, you know, is going to pervert it into being, you know, like a kind of a nuclear weapon type deal. And then they moved the, instead of the 
Omega system, they're like, well, Genesis creation, biblical. Genesis, the Genesis system, later shortened to the Genesis device. Now, it's at this point where they're writing the script all around the idea of Khan and the Genesis device and these ships. And it had occurred to Bennett that nobody has asked Ricardo Montalban if he has the time to do this movie. We're spending a lot of time on the script about Khan, and we don't know if we can get Khan. So Maltaban um, was asked around this time, and he was very eager to return to the role of Khan. It had always been a favorite of his from his lengthy career and going to different television shows. Um, so he was very eager to do so, so much so that he was offered like the standard kind of big at this time, bigger contract, you know, because he would be one of the stars of the movie, like not on the level of what Kirk and Spock would be making, uh, what Shatner and Nimoy and Hell would be making, but on the upper echelon. And Montalban said, just give me $100,000. Just give me $100,000, put that other money towards like making it look good. I want to be in this character. But Montalban also told them, well, you have to do this around my fantasy island schedule because I still, you know, I'm still shooting the series. I need to be able to, you know, shoot the series. And so this is a, this is the, again the where okay, we'll make it like you know, not necessarily this yet, but this is where the inkling of like we'll make it the submarine movie where it's like you know Kirk and Spock never actually meet. So this is where that inkling comes in, but it will be coming in more so in just a a few moments. They're, they're going forward on this script, and this is also at the point where they're starting to kind of get, okay, tell everybody we're getting this movie to get together. Uh, obviously, Shatner's on board because it's Shatner. Uh, though Shatner, interestingly enough, was a little hesitant on the age thing because Shatner is well known for having a big ego about himself, for better or for worse. But that means he's also self-conscious about himself. And he was just worried about, like, he's just like, no, I can do the starvation thing again. I, I don't mind doing it. And Bennett's like, listen this movie will help you in age gracefully. Like he's literally like, you'll be like a Spencer Tracy. You'll be like, you know, all those old Hollywood actors that like, you'll be a Cary Grant. You'll just like age with grace and, and you'll have a new career. And he was not wrong. I mean, Shatner kind of really rebuilt his career off of these Star Trek films. Well, it's also like, because I guess it's like there, there is something natural about feeling like, all right, once you address like the age thing, then you're also into like the passing of the torch thing. And you're kind of like acknowledging that you're going to have to move on from the role, which is actually kind of funny considering what the actual context of the movie is. Yes. Um, but it, it is, I definitely can see where he's coming from as like, from like an actor perspective. Right. And so like Shatner was totally on board um, most of the original crew was definitely like, again, like most like DeForest Kelly had essentially retired from acting outside of Star Trek. So whenever they asked him to come back for Star Trek, he was like, I'm his game. Um, allegedly, George Sakai was wavering uh, and Shatner gave him a personal call to tell him to come back. But the big one was Nimoy because Nimoy had, again, initially declined doing the motion picture and declined doing phase two. Then he came back in because he thought it was going to be the only movie. Now that they're making a sequel, he was sort of wavering. And then Bennett was like, well, what if we gave you like a big death scene? What if like, what if we, you know, what if we gave you a, a, a bang and a flash to go out? And Nimoy was like, okay, there's just as much likelihood that this is going to be the last Star Trek movie as the last one was. And, and they were, Bennett was treating this like, you know, I only have one chance at this. There may not be another Star Trek movie after this. So let's just go out with a bang. Let's make something big. 
So Nemo was like, okay, you know, I'll be on board for this. And initially in that first script, the Nimoy death was at the beginning of the movie. And Bennett was like, oh, we're going to make it like a Janet Lee and Psycho situation where you, you, you don't expect it to have that, that character. You don't expect it to kill so early. And then it kind of changes your whole perspective on the movie. But that was when some sort of mysterious leak happened where the death of Spock was sort of filtered into the Star Trek community. Uh, it's never really been known how this came out, but the two prevailing theories are it was just a lucky guess by some fan that kind of built steam or Roddenberry leaked it himself because he was pissed that he wasn't more involved with the movie. Um, but in, in any case, they sort of move the death to the end of the script and still sort of like, okay, we're not killing him at the beginning of the script. We're moving it to the end sort of idea. But the script was, again, now that they've kind of had this, there's a bunch of different ideas formulating. There was that War of the Generations. There was this kind of like, you know, spaceship versus spaceship sort of idea. Another idea sort of got pitched around this time with different villains than Khan in, in case, you know, Khan didn't, you know, Maltabon had the back out, but that one was really bad. So th- basically they're at a point where they were, they had deadlines for, for special effects production to begin, you know, because they just need to get ahead of the game on here. And that's when Karen Moore, uh, one of the other Paramount executives at the time, suggested Nicholas Meyer for uh, help on the screenplay. Nicholas Meyer, uh, one of the reasons that Karen Moore thought he would be good was one of his things that he was most known for at this time was his Sherlock Holmes pastiche, The 7% Solution, which was a novel he wrote that he turned into a movie about uh, Sherlock Holmes uh, visiting uh, Freud to help you know kick Holmes's cocaine addiction. It was basically sort of like a meta, like alternate, like why, you know, the, the Holmes's death was written because he was actually kind of addicted to cocaine, this sort of thing. Very popular book and still reg- highly regarded as well as his directorial effort on time after time, the Jack the Ripper time travel movie. Uh, so Meyer was someone who had zero knowledge of Star Trek, um, but was eager to sort of take like stuff like he enjoyed doing with Holmes, like with Holmes, he was a big Holmes fan, but he enjoyed sort of taking the Arthur Conan Doyle style and like making it out as his own, but also kind of you know embracing what it was, kind of a mixture of both. And Meyer was like, okay, well, I'm interested in this idea. If I, you know, writing and then possibly directing it, that wasn't necessarily confirmed right away. So Meyer went in and he was like, he talked to Bennett, he talked to the screenwriters, he talked to everybody, he talked to Nimoy and he talked to, to Shatner. And he was like, okay, tell me everything you like about the script. Everybody give me a list of everything you like, a scene, a set of dialogue, an action sequence, a moment, a character, everything that you like. Just give me a list of all the different things that you like and I'm going to make it and combine it into one script. This completed script needed to be completed in 12 days. And Meyer was able to hit that deadline with no, without signing a contract yet, without actually determining if he was going to be signed on for this movie. He basically did it unpaid, uncredited. He like basically came back to Paramount. It's like, hey, okay, I fixed your script. And Paramount was like super enthusiastic about this. And this is where the deal came in to make Meyer the director of the the movie. What I, what I have to say about Meyer, um, just after talk, listening to the commentary, love this guy. Yeah. Oh, I have a quote from him, by the way, about like sort of his view on writing Star Trek two, or like his, his, he said, uh, years after the movie, 
The cheap contribution I brought to Star Trek II was a healthy disrespect. Star Trek was a human allegory in a space format. That was both its strength and ultimately its weakness. I tried through irreverence to make them more human and a little less wooden. I didn't insist that Captain Kirk go to the bathroom, but did Star Trek have to be so sanctified? The thing that made me like him when I was listening to the commentary, and, and you're going to laugh when I tell you this. Yeah. Is that he says, he shared this with like another buddy of his. He said, one of the first things I do when I look at a script, the one of the first questions I ask are, where are the jokes? Yeah. Oh, for and, sure. And, and especially in this era of, you know, with these like types of films and people feeling like, oh, like they, they could use less jokes. And you know how I've always kind of like fought against that. That sensibility was just and it and it, it wasn't like you know like you know yuck yucks like type of jokes it was just kind of like little kind of just like clever things that make you laugh and enjoy the characters and for sure to me that was the sensibility that made me fall in love with the character and or with the director and then ultimately like really explain some of the specifics of the movie mm -hmm. um but we'll get into that but yeah, yeah. but this is where Meyer really took this kind of base idea of sort of like the submarine movie in space and made it full blown. He basically was like, you know, he also unknowingly the same influence as Roddenberry and Shatner had. He, the Horatio Honeblower character was very much something like a Horatio Honeblower in space, but he really based his script upon a bunch of the fame, his favorite submarine movies from the fifties and, and really sort of taking it to, another level to the point where it's Meyer who really inserts a more distinct naval feel to Starfleet. Whereas like Roddenberry had always like, you know, took inspiration from like, cause his time in the military and everything like that and sort of the military ranking system. But he was always playing coy. Cause again, he didn't want to promote that there was like war and violence and everything like that in this time period. But, but Meyer really sort of took in, the naval aspect and, and from everything uh, from every aspect of it, just in terms of how the ship was run and how people characters were referred to each other, related to each other up down, down to the costumes as well. Well, and I think, and Myers, his whole kind of point to it was that he felt like that was, those are like the little subtle cues that ground it mm -hmm. like the whole thing, because one of the, the stories he tells is that, you know, he kind of did the litmus test with, he kind of like showed the story in the movie to his, his father who hates sci-fi. Yeah. But just the little elements of like, oh, it's like a, it's like a naval thing was kind of like just a, just enough of an element to kind of like gr grab like somebody who isn't into the sci-fi stuff. So right. he definitely had like a smart sensibility in that regard. Right. So there's like, he adds like, just again, little like, you know, even the points of like, you know, um, Nimoy, uh, sorry for uh, Spock and uh, Kirk to call Savick Mr. Savick was just like a, one of those little detail. He has like a boatswine call, you know, and more lights and everything like that. Though his one very controversial addition that was ultimately mostly cut out of the movie was the addition of a no smoking sign on the bridge. And, you know, 
Roddenberry was like, why would they smoke in the future? They have like this, all this knowledge of how bad it is. And like, you know, Myers counterpoint was like, well, we've been smoking for like 200 years. You don't think they're going to be doing for another 200 years in the future. Uh, but, but eventually most of the no smoking signs were cut out of the movie. I think you can still see it briefly in the Kobe Mashi Maru sequence, but uh, essentially smoking is still banned in the future. So the script is sort of finalized and, and uh, Meyer's position as director is sort of finalized. The original title that Meyer had for the film was The Undiscovered Country, um, which would eventually be used for a different Star Trek film. Uh, but then for a long time, the title was The Vengeance of Khan. And Paramount decided to change it to The Wrath of Khan because they thought the title was too similar to Revenge of the Jedi, um, which of course also eventually gets changed. So now we're kind of getting into the script and a bunch of these other characters that are uh, added. Again, we talked about the, the crew are all back. Um, it is noted by all folks that uh, Chekhov's role was decided because, you know, that Chekhov was the one that they felt that they could put most outside of the Enterprise. Although Meyer acknowledges that, you know, Chekhov wasn't a character until season two. So his knowledge of Khan and like Khan's recognizing of him technically shouldn't, you know, make sense. Meyer's thing was like, well, Sherlock Holmes or Arthur Conan Doyle always like played with continuity. It's just like, it's a thing. You just do what's convenient for the movie. The late, so Star Trek lore does eventually confirm that Chekhov was on the ship, just not, upgraded to the position he was in yeah my, uh, the way myers puts it is that it's a big shit yeah mm-hmm. for sure um but we do have a few new roles outside of the return of, of khan newton singh so by the way i should mention now those are ricardo bond bond's real pecs yes yeah that is something that everybody wants you to know those are not prosthetic pecs those are not prosthetic like are like the, like his he's truly built like you know a monster like that and Imaltaban said it was just a lot of push-ups and a lot of good eating um the the most major new role of course is the uh the uh trainee Vulcan Savik played by none other than Christy Alley uh in her film debut as mentioned er, introducing Christy Alley uh Alley was a huge Star Trek fan growing up and she was extremely eager. She said she, she used to fantasize about being Spock's daughter. So when the opportunity came to audition to be a young Vulcan, not necessarily Spock's daughter, but a young female Vulcan, she basically came on the, uh, to the audition and did a perfect Spock impression. Um, essentially just basically did um, Spock uh, to a T. And that's essentially what got her the role. Uh, Nimoy was a big fan of working with, with Christy Alley at the time, though Roddenberry thought that she had a little bit of a two girl next door type of look like, uh, like she looks like the girl that, you know, would put down the tennis racket and sit by the pool. Although Roddenberry would admit later that he did warm up to the Savage character as production went on. Um, we also have Carol Marcus, BB Besh. Uh, I want to point out that Meyer said she was looking for an actress who was beautiful enough for Kirk to have fallen for, but also very intelligent looking so B.B. Bash was the perfect Carol Marcus. And Merrick Buttrick has his, her son, David Marcus, also Kirk's son. He was cast eventually because Meyer said he, his hair was blonde and like 
Beshes and Curly's like Shatner's. So he thought it was he could be their son. Uh, and then uh, there was one other Paul Winfeld as Clark Terrell, the captain of the Reliant. That was just because Meyer saw him on another film and just wanted to direct him uh, and give an opportunity to, you know, an African-American actor that he really liked. So basically the original budget for this film was 8.5 million. Uh, and they start shooting the film on November 9th, 1981. And basically the Paramount executives are so impressed with those first sort of rushes of the film that they allow the budget to increase to 12 million. The biggest money saver, of course, was the fact that they were reusing most of the sets and models from the motion picture. So the Enterprise set is the same one from the motion picture, just upgraded again with little video inserts to better have the screens flowing. The Reliant uh, bridge is, excuse me, the Reliant bridge is the Enterprise bridge just redressed. Um, the regular one space station model is the model from the beginning, like the, the model at the beginning of the motion picture flipped upside down. Um, even the uh, outside of Kirk's apartment, there is a map painting or like there's like kind of a background that shows like this futuristic San Francisco city. The, the back part of it, you know, was a reuse from the towering Inferno. And then they painted a bunch of futuristic um, stuff in front of it to make it look like future San Francisco. So basically a lot of stuff, even like, uh, you know, the costumes were remade out of the motion picture costumes, but dyed red because Meyer felt that that color really emphasized itself against the rest of the bridge. Basically, you know, if everything, even shots from the motion picture were reused for the uh, undocking of the Enterprise and Kirk's shuttle approaching the Enterprise. Um, one note about the Reliant, the other ship in this movie, is they were worried about differentiating it because it was basically the first sort of new ship they would have to do. And it, they would have these submarine battles. So like, uh, how do you know what ship is which? Uh, it was solved accidentally when Harv Bennett took a look at the blueprints for the um, the Reliant upside down and signed it upside, you know, signed it like this is good, but on the wrong side. So when they got it back, they realized, oh, Harv must have looked at this upside down. But then everybody realized, you know what? Let's see if this works. Let's see if we can make this model. And so that's where the first kind of different looking ship than the Enterprise comes in. Because even on the original series, whenever they did another ship, it basically looked like the Enterprise. Um, so the last thing I want to talk about um, in this movie at this point, or there's two last things I want to talk about. The effects. Um, so one of the things that Meyer and Solomon Miner and the crew that was originally like getting into the making of this movie was like, they all knew that Miner had worked on the motion picture. Meyer knew about the stories about the motion picture. And one of the things is like, okay, we are detailing storyboarding every single one of these action sequences. Just so know exactly what we have, exactly how much money it's going to be, how much we need to do. So basically their plan was we're going to do all these storyboards for all the action sequences and send it out to whatever production company, you know, is going to help us. So they intricately detail all the sequences and they decide to go to industrial light and magic, which is, uh, you know, a relatively new company around this time. We've got to remember industrial light and magic was formed for 
basically, you know, for the Empire Strikes Back and this sort of stuff. And it was around this time, you know, that they were starting to take outside work outside of their Lucasfilm, you know, obligations. You know, they were also working on Return of the Jedi at this point. But Wrath of Khan was one of the very first films that they took sort of from an outside Lucasfilm project. <laughs> uh, so Industrial Light and Magic took all the storyboards that Meyer and Miner and Solon had worked on. Uh, they were able to reuse the models of the Enterprise from the motion pictures, just redetailing them slightly and built the Reliant model in a very similar fashion. Um, they, uh, you know, shot it against, uh, um, they did some camera tricks, shot it against, you know, kind of a starry sky to give the uh, illusion of movement. They basically also created special like stickers and, and little things they could peel off to represent damage on the Sith so they didn't necessarily have to damage the models themselves. Um, one of the most fun stories, we're talking about the Seti eel shots, the eels that burrow into people's ears. Um, Ken Ralston was in charge of this part of the project and he had just finished building all the creatures for Return of the Jedi. Like he had built like Jabba the Hutt and all this sort of stuff. So he was kind of in this sort of mood to like do more modeling. And the way they did it, um, the big shot of the eels was obviously burrowing the ears, but the biggest shot that they had was when the one eel falls out of Chekhov's ear. So what they did was, of course, they built a giant ear based off Chekhov's ear. They built a giant ear and they had like this little kind of rotted puppet of the Seti eel flowing out of it. And Ralston said they filmed three versions of it. They felt they built a dry shot, one with some blood, and the Fangoria shot, which was just a mountain of blood coming out of the ear. And eventually they used the middle one. Hmm. Uh, and a definition of what uh, was uh, part of Lucasfilm's just sort of MO at this time. One day Ralston was going up to the ear set as they needed to do a couple more reshoots and found that someone had built a giant Q-tip to put next to the ear. So it was just a fun environment. Um, also the big Genesis explosion at the end of the movie was really cool to shoot. They shot, they rented out the cow palace, which was an arena in San Francisco. They put like a starry mat. They made a big explosion and they shot it on a camera that shot 2,500 frames a second. <laughs> so it was like a minute long explosion, but in the movie it, it showcases it at a much slower scale. But one of this movie's biggest contributions to cinema history is this is the movie that features the first ever entirely computer-generated sequence. Yes. Uh, so they were one, trying... One, one that holds up. So they were trying to figure out... There's a scene in the movie where there's this Genesis simulation. It's part of this video that Kirk and, and McCoy and uh, Spock watch that um, they watch this kind of simulation of the planet forming. Uh, how the Genesis device is supposed to work. And there was a couple of ideas about like how to best do this thing. But some of the uh, people at uh, uh, at uh, Industrial Light and Magic was like, wait a minute, some of the tests that the Lucasfilm computer graphics department has been doing, this could this could work for them. So let's give them a shot at this. So basically the the uh, the computer graphics group basically took like sort of the storyboards and sort of figured out that they could do sort of this big flyover shot of this planet sort of exploding kind of informing and things growing and zoom out on the planet. And this was a, not only was this a huge success, Will, you could technically 
technically count this as the first ever computer animated shot to come out of Pixar. <laughs> uh, having watched uh, a Pixar doc pretty recently, it, it, it is just the story about how it was like kind of like an elaborate tool before it became the movie studio that we all know and love today is just very fascinating. Yeah. So basically that was kind of the first sort of big assignment that sort of ad Catmull's sort of side group at industrial light and magic got to do. Um, and so it was a very big sort of contribution and also for, for Lucasfilm that, and you know, Lucasfilm and industrial light and magic that they just had another tool at their expenses. And obviously a tool that would continue to be, you know, increased upon. Very before we get to the movie, the last thing I want to mention is sort of to dispel this myth because this could be worth talking about later. But I feel like now is the good time. It's like what Leonard Nimoy thought about the making of this movie, because there's a lot of sort of like thoughts that oh he hated Star Trek at this time and then like he kind of you know figured it out and that's not really the case. The thing about Nimoy with this movie was he made that agreement to do the death scene because he thought it would be something interesting. And again, if this was going to be the last Star Trek movie to go out with a bang, you know, he was still wishy-washy on the whole Spock thing and coming back constantly. But the thing about uh, Nimoy is he's, he was wavering even at the time he made an agreement. And as he was making the movie, he really sort of rediscovered his love for Spock and his love for the character and his love working with the crew. And he, he just had a really fun time a much more fun time than he had on the motion picture. Just a really fun experience. So near the end of production, it's Nimoy who comes up to Bennett basically and says, what if we kind of put in something sort of to, to hint at the possible return of Spock? Cause, cause Nimoy's already thinking, well, I feel like this movie is much better than the, than the motion picture. And I feel like it's going to be more success. And I would love to come back as Spock. And it's also that, you know, if I find a way to kind of, you know, weasel my way into this another movie, I have leverage too. So it's not, it's also as if he wants to be Spock, but he was also like, hey, like, you know, if there's an opportunity for me to come back. It's going to be a high demand. The fans are going to want me back. The studio is going to want me back. So it's him and Bennett on their own that, that come up with the idea of the remember sequence. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Bennett is the one that adds in a lot of the other hints, like the the very last shot of the movie and everything like that. Which Meyer was not a fan of at all. Thought that Spock's death should not be like something re- reversible. But Meyer also was just like, I'm not gonna, you know, it's they they're gonna do what they're gonna do. I made the movie I made, and whatever happens, happens. He he did acknowledge in the commentary that the insert was cleverly done. He said for for all it's worth that the. Uh... The way in which they they do hint at that, especially with the remember bit, was like he's like, oh, I mean, they, you know, they, yeah, just 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 technically, it's like yeah. pretty seamless. But uh, and this will actually come back when we talk about our next movie. But there was yeah, there was no ill will towards Star Trek from from Nimoy at this time. That he he did rediscover his love for the character, but he still had an attachment just even doing this movie. It wasn't as if he was like I hated Star Trek around this point. And yeah, I think that's pretty much. Uh, there might be some other stuff I mentioned during the motion, the the actual movie discussion itself. The whole point was we're making a cheaper Star Trek movie, and we 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 listed many of the ways that they did uh, make this kind of cheaper movie. Are you ready to talk about it? It's coming through now, Con. Con, bloodsucker! You're gonna have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you? 
Kirk. Kirk, you're still alive, my old friend. Still, old friend. You managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Perhaps I no longer need to try. Oh no, they're going breathtaking! Come. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on hurting you. I shall leave you as you left me. As you left her. Marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet. Buried alive. The quote said it all, folks. Khan! We're back, everybody. All right. Wrath of Khan, Will. This is a big one. This is a big one, I think. Um, I mean, I, I can just go ahead and start. This is one of my favorite movies ever made. This is a top 10 movie for me. Uh, again, sort of kick-started what would eventually become my 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 interest and in, in fandom of the franchise. Uh, and I think it's what really gives me it's one of the things that really does give me such an attachment to the original series characters that this is the first that I really saw them. And just, I'm reminded of something you said earlier in the podcast, I believe about um, Jack Ryan, about when we watched uh, clear and present danger and how it's like the little moments that really sort of make you invested and make you kind of care for and root for and enjoy these characters. And, the, and for all the big epic nature of this film and sort of the great performance by Ricardo Montalban and sort of just the, the way the story is told and everything, what really makes this movie so good are just the little moments between characters. It's when you get the moments between Kirk and Spock and Kirk and McCoy and we did get, you know, again, we, we talked about, we got a little bit of that with like McCoy in the motion picture, but I feel like all that just feels so much more special. And just the characters just feel so alive and so rich in this movie that even if you really don't know anything else about Star Trek, that you can kind of already instantly see why these characters are characters that people love and attach themselves to. Um, and just the, the nature of the script and its themes. Oh, it's themes. I can't wait to talk about the themes of the script and Kirk's journey. Oh, just this movie is so good. It's so good. I love this movie so much. Uh, yeah, it's, um, it's effing good. I mean, it, it really, is, it's just a really good movie. Um, and I think, I mean, there's still a couple entries I haven't seen, but 
I, I think it's hands down the best Star Trek film. Yeah, I think it's like got uh, like I, a I, yeah, got some like a few little bits of competition down the road, but like yeah, yeah. but even but even so, like I mean, it, it, I mean, obviously, like there there's some great Star Trek films. Don't get me wrong, but it just it, it operates so seamlessly. It's such like a seamlessly great movie. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way that I thought about it because it, it's also like very deceptive in some of the things because you know it's very easy to talk about how it is so great in the way that it is but some of that greatness comes from just how streamlined the film is how simple some of the film is and a lot of those complex themes that i'm sure that we'll talk about come from how just simple of a movie that it is yeah um you know, it, it is funny to think about how, you know, in many ways this movie is like a course correction from the motion picture. But then even when like listening to the commentary, it is funny that like it almost seemed effortless because uh, in the commentary, one of the pro- I think a producer uh, was like talking about how, you know, Roddenberry was going very sci fi epic with that movie as opposed to this movie, but Myers was talking kind of like really about like, well, he did kind of also see an ep- a sci-fi epicness quality to this one. It was just kind of like the way in which he translated that was like a little bit different, but to kind of get back to your point, um, this going back to what I said about the original film, about how you really only get that real human lovable connection between the characters at the end, this kind of like, that energy is just woven throughout this entire movie and the film just operates on all cylinders like the characters are great the interaction between the characters are great the plot is simple and streamlined the the villain is simple and streamlined but also just has a great performance behind it and all for the purpose of like just highlighting these specific themes that are deceptively powerful i think it's just all around just like a just a solid solid feature yes for sure and i can't wait to dig into it and and, and and what's also fun about the the film watching it it's like it's so easy to go down the rabbit hole of like this is a film that would never get made like today and and you know in some ways cynically i would say that about the first one this one, on the other hand, probably so, but in multiple ways. Because I think, like, yeah, there's there's some aspects about it that the sensibilities just wouldn't be made today. But also just from a pure... If the same fans who would want a movie like this also wouldn't accept this. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm just going to get this kind of idea out of the way. I, just to talk about Khan, like, the the namesake of the film. It's very interesting that this movie is called The Wrath of Khan. Because the Wrath of Khan is almost just kind of like a fleeting aspect to the movie that drives the plot. Like, it's an important movie, and obviously without it, there is no plot. And it's almost like that's the name of the plot of the movie because that's kind of like the driving force of the plot. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, when you think about the movie... so, So, just talking about Khan real quick. Yeah. What's so fun about Khan is that R- Ricardo Montalban's performance is great. The look is great. He stands out. He's got a bunch of different aspects of hamming it up that are great. 
the other thing about Khan is like he's kind of an idiot. He's he's yeah, it's he's got they give him that sort of what we kind of think about that Captain Ahab quality where it's just like, you know, he has this, you know, this superior intellect and sort of this superior presence to him. But he, in this movie, it's just like the time he spent on Sandy Alpha 5 has just blinded him to just being enraged by by Kirk and what Kirk did to him and his people. Where, right, like he does make a bunch of dumb decisions because he's just so passionate, right? And that's like, that's well, all about it, his character. What I thought about this was like, there's no way a character like this would be accepted by viewers today. Mm-hmm. Because in the age where we give elaborate plans to villains and fans nitpick things like well that the plan doesn't make any sense why why wouldn't he just why wouldn't he just create the resources with the infinity gauntlet in 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 the age of that (laughs) there's no way we would get a character where his primary motivation is just like kirk's a dickhead and i just gotta get him you don't understand he's an asshole and i gotta get him like that's like his motivation to the point that characters are calling him at like his own allies are calling him out on his BS. And then he's just like, no, I, we got it. We got to get like a character. Literally his own second in command goes up to him is literally like, why? Like we have what we want. Let's get out of here. We, we have a device that basically like hold the universe hostage, which like we, you can do what you wish. You and- can be a ruler again. And then, um, and, then, and, then, and then Khan's like, no, but but also like an extension of that that I love too is like there's a moment where Khan, who is an idiot, I'm not going to let that go. He's a moron where he's just like, they fly into like, was it an asteroid field or a star field or something? And then Khan's like, why aren't we going after them? The, 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 ne- sec- the nebula, yeah. Yeah, and then the second in command's like, well, you know, there's a nebula, we're going to be blinded in there. And then even his second in command has like this look on his face where he's like, ugh. Like he's like just rolls his eyes, and, right, and Khan like literally like sinks back in his chair, and he's like still pointing, like he's like, but Kirk, like he's like he's like, oh man, and then Kirk goes, right, into- right. So it, 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 so it's so fascinating. But anyway, so all that is a roundabout way of saying like this movie, like it's funny that it is like kind of more swashbuckling and action packed. But for all that talk about how Star Wars, uh, not Star Wars, Star Trek is like kind of like more kind of like about like you know outthinking and everything. This movie finds that balance because ultimately it's about like this villain who is a super villain, but how his two dimensional thinking, how the fact that he is a very thin character plays into his own demise within the story. So that is kind of like a a very, like just a very brief succinct look into like the genius of the film and it's also funny because again like that you mentioned that line it's one of the classic lines of the film is like you know his like his actions showcase two-dimensional thinking which is just a funny because it's also sort of again sort of as much as roddenberry wasn't like involved with the movie it all just goes to what roddenberry's vision of the future is because khan is a product uh in the star trek world of 1990s you know, genetic engineering and, and wars and everything like that. And Khan has a very like past driven viewpoint. Whereas like Kirk and Spock, you know, on the original series, you know, they're playing three dimensional chess and they have it's a whole different outlook on, on everything. So it's even then where it's like sort of those, the modern sort of like, you know, thirst for vengeance and war and, and everything like that, that Khan represents 
is outclassed eventually by this future, you know, three-dimensional thinking. It's even just another little meta sort of like idea that I really just sort of like. There's all these little kind of little details of the movie. Are so well, much well, well, that's one of the things is like, you know, this is one of those movies as I was watching it and really going through it. And obviously I'd seen it before. So kind of going through it again, it's a movie where there's so many moments in it that are deserving of their own episode of a podcast. Like, for, yeah. like I, I thought like, like, um, just each of the characters that we love, like Kirk, Spock, McCoy, um, even like some of the new characters like Carol Marcus and Savick, like every, and that was like another thing, like even like the new cast is like just banging on all cylinders too. Um, and, and I, I was, I was just really thrown by revisiting it and just watching just like how tight and lived in like the the these characters these characters were and and you know and even just like little things down to like it was just funny like kind of jumping off in the motion picture into this film like how much it kind of course corrected it because in, in in some ways if you really want to think about it the film is just the first movie done better and i'm not saying it's a recreation of the movie but there are similar elements like Kirk being in a position where like the the Enterprise is going to a new crew or like the Enterprise is out of his hands. They do that again in this movie, like little mm -hmm. things. So it's like they're kind of like taking like that template and honestly doing kind of like a, a more compelling thing with it. Um, so there's that, but then also just course correcting on certain things like, you remember how I said like it was kind of lame that like characters just kind of like appear like nobody has an introduction yeah like in anything like that like all the the crew members have a pretty good introduction with just like getting them right into the mess like we left the last film is like they're going out into the great beyond and now they're like part of the crew solid enough introduction but man let's give Kirk the introduction of introductions where he oh, like, so, comes so. in with the beams of light behind him perfect awesome Loved it. yeah but i guess like even i think it's one of those things where like obviously i think that kobayashi Ramu opening you know after the the james horner score uh which was this his his first major motion picture score by the way um that's always that was always fun because that's a story where like they were looking for someone cheaper than goldsmith and and someone in the music department had this like demo tape of a 28 year old james horner and it's like this guy sounds good like let's give him a shot uh, but anyway, so we get to the Kobayashi Maru and it's like, you know, again, just sort of our first look at Savic and, and this whole sort of situation, but like, you know, everybody on the crew seemingly dies. And then you have this big introduction to Kirk and then, uh, but then even that you get this big introduction with Kirk with the lights and just perfect. And then it leads to this moment where he like walks in and he sees McCoy on the floor and he's like, what? No word about my performance. <laughs> like this sort of stuff. Uh, and even then where it's like, uh, you know, they, you have, um, you know, the crew kind of there on the ship, on the, on the ship as everybody kind of leaves and, you know, why don't we just get the experienced crew on the enterprise? Oh, gal uh, gallivanting around the cosmos is a game for the young doctor. And then Uhura is like, what's that supposed to mean? Just these little fun moments right from the get go. Whereas you're right in the motion pictures. There's just like, they're there, but like every one of those characters, like, like the the rest of the cast, you know, they have bigger roles in future Star Trek movies, you know, like, you know, we'll get to four, like four, they get a lot, everybody gets a lot to do. But like you get little moments like with that with Ahura or like later with um, 
you know, Sulu when they they have to go out after a regular one, and he's like, "So much for a little training cruise." And it's just like those little moments, like yeah, that. that that was the only thing, and it really wasn't a negative. It was just mostly like it just kind of interesting, and it's one of those aspects where you're kind of like you can't help but look at what the franchise has become when you retroactively look at something. Yeah, it's interesting to see how limited of roles that Ahura um scotty and um sulu get yeah in, in i think films it's it's funny too because like I think... for, and, and for a character who's like came in late like Chekhov actually has more to do yes than for sure and i think it's one of the things where again i think that was like the strength of the original series and it's just like you know like you had kind of you know slightly bigger moments here and there for those characters and i think it's also something that we're going to see the films kind of do more of as they go on that we do get a little bit more of those characters but again they just they fit into their functions i think very well in this movie so so speaking of like kirk and we're talking about the kobayashi maru i wanted to talk about kirk's character a little bit because this is like maybe one of the best times i've ever liked kirk Mm -hmm. like ever yes um and one of the things i like about it was like they find the perfect balance of making him kind of like the devil may care kind of like swashbuckling uh captain but you know they never go like really and, and even with like a little bit of like flirtatiousness to them but they never go overboard with it to the point where he's like kind of eye rolling and one of the things that is really funny this movie operates on so many different interesting levels because it's all about like they really make this complex character with kirk about how he really is a good captain and a good teacher and a good leader, but he's also very human to the point where he doesn't follow his own rules. Like he still has his own vices. So, and the reason I wanted to talk about the Kobayashi Maru thing was like throughout the movie, he's really hammering home this lesson specifically to Savick about like how you need to appreciate the lesson that the Kobayashi Maru is teaching you. Right. We have like to, that, you know, we consider death as much as we consider life, right? Like, right. That's like, it, you, that you, like the, the whole no win scenario you have to face. Meanwhile, is he's the same guy who's like, but me, like, I, I don't believe in a no win scenario. So I, I reprogram the test so I can win because I'm always going to find a way. And, you know, it's one of those things where you can easily look at that as being like, is it like very hypocritical? But yeah, it is hypocritical. But I think the way that Shatner is playing the way he's teaching the lesson otherwise, I think that it's one of those human things where I think that we all have to acknowledge that we often preach what we don't or we teach or we preach what we don't practice that, ourselves. Yeah. And I, and I think that the way in which that's written, directed and performed with the character is masterfully done. And then also adding that layer of he's kind of being a father figure to like, you know, in teaching that type of lesson, but then he's also kind of dealing with aging into that role. And then also dealing with like the fact that like he, you know, he has a son in this film and that's one of those things where I'm just like this movie, just like, deceptively is like is really deceptively deep just the way like yeah just the kirk character and his arc in this movie has always been something and it's something i appreciate more every time i watch it like even in its beginnings where you're kind of getting the sense of you know kirk's 
unhappiness with you know his current situation right because it's again it's sort of again you're right it's a very similar situation to motion picture where like he's taking this admiral ship but you know there's this kind of thing where it's like he's kind of growing you know he's growing into his older age and he kind of wishes that he was still gallivanting around the cosmos and going to gangster planets and shit like that like you know, it's also something where, you know, but he's movie, also he's not a dick about it like he was in the no, last. No, no, no. No, he's perfectly settled about it. But like cuz it's also a movie that takes place around his birthday. Uh cuz the movie opens up uh with, you know, once they kind of going up cuz the other thing is that now um Spock is now captain of the Enterprise or at least captain of this trading mission. So like he has this whole thing where he walks and talks with with Kirk and Spock have this walk and talk about sort of like, you know, their uh, you know thoughts on the trainees and stuff like that. And then you know Spock has gifted Kirk uh, a copy of A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, and he's you know it's like this whole thing where it's like I know your fondness for antiques and thought this would be just a good gift for you. And I just loved like him. There's little moments of just like it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Trying to tell me anything, nothing of note except of course, happy birthday. Certainly, the best of times. And then you transitioned into Kirk's apartment where he has a bunch of, again, old, like, you know, our current age stuff where McCoy comes in with his great line, beware Romulans bearing gifts, gives uh, Kirk a, a nice bottle of bright blue Romulan ale, which, of course, is illegal at this time in the Star Trek continuity. But uh, again, just a relationship, but the relationships, because it's even like, you know, Kirk and Spock have their relationships, but then you get... Oh, you, you, you buy more than ever the friendship between all these characters. Right. And, and, but this, that scene of Kirk, because then the other big part of it is, you know, he gives, you know, McCoy gives him the, the illegal Romulan ale. And then his other gift is a pair of antique eyeglasses because Kirk can't get like the modern, I, like, I, you know, Retinex eye thing. So he has to, like, you know, accept these glasses and, you know, Part of it's like it's an antique, but also that might help you. But it also just emphasizes Kirk's age, and they just have a conversation. Well, it's an antique having to use an antique, almost. right? Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's an antique using an antique, and they just have this conversation where it's just well, like. And, and, and all this being said, like the way he behaves and the mortality of the character is also kind of cleverly addressed in the movie too. When in another, just like just on its face, is just like a great written moment when he goes on board and Savick's like, he's like, he says something like, oh, that's like so peculiar. It's like, what? I didn't expect him to be so human. And then like, and then Spock's like, well, nobody's perfect, Savick. Yes, yes. And, and that also pivots into the fact that like, you know, I talked about like why the friendships work so good in the movie. Everybody just talks as if they're buddies. They just talk like real people who are treating everybody like they're real people, but like the friendships... Like they talk like real, like friends. A hundred percent. And and I think that maybe in the last film, DeForest Kelly was the only one doing that with anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and then we didn't really get that until the end of the film where everybody was just kind of being distant and antagonistic with each other and cold. You know, everybody is much more warmer and feels like real people in this film but nobody's ever sacrificing the type of character that they are. Like Spock still feels, and this is the genius of Nimoy, is that he feels just as Spock as ever, but we don't need to go through the whole, like, I'm being a, I'm, I'm, I'm being cold and emotionalist that we were doing in the, in the last film. No, oh, this is the Spock that everybody loves. Like the Spock that, you know, grew over the course of the series. Like, you know, to compare. And, and, then, and then you get to still play with it 
because then you get to have the cliche Spock with the Savic character. Mm -hmm. So, and then even you're operating with the whole, like, you know, kind of like paternal figure and like the whole like older generation, newer generation with that. And then there, you get some fun moments with that. Like the whole, like you lied. He's like, Nearly elaborated, and then you're like, "See, like, and then exaggerate, like, yeah, yeah." You're exaggerated, and like that, ugh. Like, just, there's just so many. There's moments just so many moments, just... yeah. Like, mm. I love, you know, just even getting to like, uh, you know, when the the first part of the inspection, when I love just again another great small moment where like again Kirk, like everybody, like Kirk's sort of like. You know, thinking like, oh, I don't know if they can even handle a training crews. And the you know, Suda's like, I need a chance to go aboard the Enterprise. Like, that's sort of thing. But the did other you, great. Did you enjoy the I hate inspections? <laughs> yes. And I, I thought that was just kind of like, whether intentional or not, a funny nod to the whole, like, you know, whole like big panning shots of like the. <laughs> yeah. Of the thing. But even that moment where, like, you know, Kirk is with McCoy and they're checking out the engine room with Scotty and all his all his new crew. And then, you know, he's going up the, like, Kirk's going up the lift. It's like, oh, let's prepare for a little, like, a little cruise. Uh, let's, let's, let's head out. And then McCoy's like, wait, like, what about the rest of the inspected? And he just cut to Kirk with, like, the silent, like, later. Like, he's, like, putting his hand, like, across the top, like, later. We'll finish awesome. it later. I uh, it. Great shit. And even him, like, just a little moment where, like, you know, the, uh, uh, Spock offers Savick to take the ship out of dock. And then Kirk's face immediately, like, goes white. This is like, oh shit. Oh no, and then and then uh and then Bones is like, you want a sedative or yeah. something? You want like the tranquilizer? Yeah. He's like, yeah, no, 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 yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> so there's there's that sort of stuff going on that's sort of again setting up these great relationship stuff. Just again, just you feel like why these characters are so loved and why they're so loved together. And then we also cut over now to what's going on on the Reliant and their mission to help uh the Genesis program. So we have Chekhov. Uh, as part of this crew on uh, checking out what they think is set the Alpha 6. Captain Tyrell as well, the Reliant. And again, just like, I love just the way this movie's written. It's just so good because just the little moments where it's like they're trying to figure out like, uh, like, does it have to be completely empty of a planet? And I just love like, you know, it's like they're trying to justify it. Like it could be something we could transplant. It's maybe pre-animate matter caught in the Matrix. And then I love this, like, again, just the moment where it's like Tyrell's just like, call regular one. Let's talk to Carol Marcus. And this Chekhov's just like, you know what she's going to say. Just like they've dealt with this so many times before. Mm -hmm. But eventually they convince, like, you know, to check out the planet, see what they get. Um, and they get to this barren wasteland of a planet and discover a uh, thing they didn't expect. They discover, like, sort of a cargo base, uh, a ship or something, something that they enter. Um, Again, like a very quotable moment for me where just one of the line reads I always love where Chekhov's like going through and they see all these like books or like it's like Moby Dick and like, you know, Paradise Lost, like all these like very sort of quote unquote pretentious books. He looks at like this thing. And he's like, Botany Bay. Botany Bay. <laughs> oh, no. And he's like, we got to get out of here. Damn. Damn. And I just love just, again, just the horror on his face where it's like, because it's like one of those things where, again, like it's, it's the brilliance of like bringing back a character, but also knowing that the audience might not know the character. Like, because, you know, it's like, as I said, like it was, Khan was kind of a known, one of the known villains of Star Trek. But again, this wasn't like, 
now where it's like, you know, if we want to see Khan, we can go on Paramount Plus or Amazon and like whatever, watch an episode or buy the DVDs and like discover all these characters. Back then you had to be, you know, lucky enough to catch the the Khan, the space seed episode on 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 uh you know uh syndication. And like me watching this for the first time, like I kinda I kind of had a knowledge of like Khan existed before this, but I didn't know anything about the character. So it was Chekhov's horror at realizing like, oh shit, they're in deep shit. And then you get to Khan's reveal, which is taken off this like very big, elaborate like costume. Uh, you know, this kind of face shield and stuff, everything like that. And then just him, Maltaban just immediately just grabs you just with his performance, which is funny too, because he said, I, another interview that I read with him said that um, he had a very hard time initially getting into Khan when he was like, agreed to it because he had been playing the fantasy island mr rourke on fantasy island for so long so he said that they, he had paramount send him the episode on like film and he watched it like third times and by the third time he was able to like embody Khan, and he just embodies that character like that first moment of him speaking he was like he goes up to Terrell, he's like i don't know you and then he goes to check off he's like but you i never forget a face mm-hmm. check off and just the little moments, this whole scene, uh, it's like, this is a great, like, again, we talk about bad exposition all the time. This is a perfect scene of exposition because it features a enchanting performance by Maltaban with so many great little moments. Like when, he, when Kurt, when Chekhov says, um, Admiral Kirk and, and Khan's eyes just light up, which is like, Admiral, Admiral, he's about to lose his like temper, but he kind of calms down, but he continues to tell the story about how Khan left him on this planet with, you know, his beloved wife, Marlon McGivers, who's not mentioned like his name, by name, but like his wife, that was a former member of the enterprise crew um, and his, his people. And then like, you know, and then just everything, just everything about the scene. I love it. Like his, his this is Sati Alpha five. And then like the whole thing, you know, and then he, and then, well, and, and then one of the things about the exposition too, is like, you actually do want to know what happened. Like, it's yes. like, well, wait a minute. How, how this end up? Right. But then even his realization, like the moment where Maltabon has Khan's eyes again, like lit up where he's going on this rant about what happened, where he's like, okay, like Celti Alpha, uh, Celti Alpha six exploded like six months into their, their time there. And then, you know, it like shifted it off course and, and, changed the planet's you know infrastructure and killed most of the people um alongside the eels but then there's this moment where he's like in the middle of this rant and then he's just like a light bulb goes off and he's like realizing like you did not expect to find me here you thought this was set to help us except just the way he transitions from this passionate like anger at kirk and anger at the situation and all that sort of stuff into the sort of like he's scheming where it's like again sort of that brilliance that he does have that is eventually blinded by his hatred for Kirk. Just a great, perfect introduction. And then you get this hor- like this horrifying scene with the, with the seti eels, which are these like worms, like this kind of cr- these bugs that burrow into your ears and make you very susceptible to suggestion. It's just so good, man. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, um, it's all good stuff. It's, it, yeah. it, it's all good stuff with Khan. Um, but definitely. then another scene that I want to get to. So it comes into that Khan basically takes over the Reliant, uses Chekhov as a means to get to Kirk by telling Carol Marcus, who is Kirk's like ex-lover and mother of his son, 
um, that like, okay, well, the, you know, taking it to, we're taking the Genesis device for our own devices, all this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then, um, I don't know if you want to say anything about that scene because I wanted to get to. No, I, I mean, I, I just kind of had a general Carol Marcus and Kirk's son note. Yeah, we can give it now if you'd like. Or Like, what a plot point that. Sh- that plot point should be disastrous. And the fact that it isn't, and the way it's in which it's like kind of like done in this movie. It, I think it, the, the fact that it's done with a very simple confidence, because in some ways it's kind of just like thrown away in the movie, like it plays a part in the movie. But, you know, it, it's kind of like a big revelation, right? That the fact that like, all right, here is this character and the fact that Kirk had a son with this character and we're just kind of casually introducing them in this film. And we're only kind of like we're 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 only um, second handedly dealing with it but it all works i think and and i think it's because there's a confidence it's done with the direction and the writing with the characters all the characters feel like adults i think it's kind of alleviated by the insinuation that the son probably knew the entire time right it's like Um, it's never directly told but there's a lot of like implication that the son sort of like had a good idea right and i and i think the other thing is like they make it very clear that it's not like a deadbeat dad situation it's more of just kind of like a an amicable like you know we're all adults we're just going our separate ways type right like she she was going into more because this again like clearly like the character it's, it's kind of old enough to be like this happened like right before or sometime like during like the the original five-year mission um and it's one of those things where again like you know kirk was going to be this leader on the starship on a five-year mission carol marcus was going into the science division and and making wanted to make all these important discoveries and she wanted you know the kid in her life and kirk wanted to go off in the cosmos it was a very mutual understanding um but the reason i want i want to get through that because obviously there's the great elevator scene with spot or with savick and kirk you know, where, um, which is a great button where it's just like, again, you know, Savick's sort of obsessed with the Kobayashi Maru and it's like, you know, Kirk is just sort of like the whole joke about like, you know, you did something with your hair, you know, it's still in regulation. Like she's so, you know, focused on the regulations and stuff like that. I just love that scene. Cause there's a whole discussion about like Kirk being coy about like what he actually did on the Kobayashi Maru and like, you know, the, the humor thing, but then it, it has this great button where, where the elevator opens up and McCoy is just there. He's like, who's been holding up the damn elevator? Again, DeForest Kelly, perfect in these types of roles. But then eventually... I I, I do want to kind of like, while we're talking about that elevator scene, what another very perfect scene because, you know, we didn't really talk in depth about Savick yet, um, who is just played by the rather... Very fine looking Kiersey Alley in this film. I mean, what, what I, I think Savick may actually like have my heart for one of the best looking Star Star Trek characters. Uh, like I, I think I, I just I just I mean like, I I guess fair. Yeah, quite. Yeah, I was just like just a very very a very good looking Vulcan. Um, and uh, uh, but but ultimately, like I mean, also a great character. I I, I just think like a very I mean, ultimately, it is kind of like a new, a newbie character who, you know, I don't know, has like, you know, anything really deep going on, but is just a good, fun, 
new character to have around and is kind of like the closest to the new audience to everything going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but anyway, so going back to that scene, I really like that scene because there, like, I thought that they found such a fun, playful, tasteful way to deal with Kirk's flirtatiousness. Mm-hmm where like you know it doesn't come across as creepy you don't get the sense that he's like trying to make a move or anything but you know you can't help but like look at a scene like that with like beautiful woman and kirk in the same elevator and obviously i don't think it goes any it goes any further than that but there is something you you know you can't escape that type of energy right and there's just just like that level of like it's like, oh, have you done something, you know, have you done something with your hair and everything like that? But then instantly just pivot back into like the the mentor role and everything. And right. I, and then I, I just like that scene. But then it's buttoned off. It's like after. Yeah, because it's after McCoy comes in and he's like, who's been on up the damn elevator? He comes in and he's like, did she do something with her hair? And Kirk's immediately like, I haven't noticed. Like he immediately like pivots away. And, from and it. You know what I liked about that? I, I kind of took that as like the 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 implicit like um acknowledgement that like yeah like kirk is of the age where he's not going to be just hitting on women left and right you know what yeah. i mean like it's like so i thought that that was a just a tasteful way of dealing with that element exactly that's just that, again just another great little scene uh, just in an elevator the whole thing is is really fun um but eventually you know uhura contacts kirk in the elevator um about you know a call from carol marcus and again another great line from Kirk who's like you doctor of anybody should know the the dangers of opening old wounds uh but eventually they go to Carol Marcus uh on the computer uh but the communications are getting garbled which is another great perfect I love Shatner's like big reads where he's like she's like uh, you know she's being garbled like they're trying to take Genesis away from me on whose authority and he's like trying to he's like getting more frustrated that like something's happening that there's something happening with like the communications and he's just you know, on whose authority? And and Shatner's just like, on no one's authority. Like he immediately just gets in this big thing where it's because like, he's it's again, but it's actually really good acting because it's just like, you know, he's confused about the situation. He has knowledge of Genesis and, and the communications are getting garbled and, you know, she's getting panicky and he's trying to like, no one's taking Genesis away. What are you talking about? And so then the reason I've talked about all this is the lead up to this scene in, in Spock's quarters where Kirk has to relay to Spock, like, hey, something's going on. We've lost contact with regular ones. Something's, some communication is happening with this mysterious device. And, you know, we're, we're the ship that's out in the quadrant right now. We have to go find it. And everything, again, just is another scene where everything about it is perfect. You have Spock in sort of his, like, you know, kind of more religious sort of Vulcan robes, like doing, like, you know, meditation and prayer. You have a Kirk who, you know, you can even argue that this is like his lesson from the first movie where he's basically telling like, you know, Spock's like, of course, well, the ship is yours, you know, and, and Kirk is immediately like in, in, in direct contrast to the motion picture is like, no, 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 no. It's just, you know, I'm just here. You're, it's, you're the captain, you know, you, you take the ship, you know, it could be nothing. So just, you know, you take it. And, you know, Spock's like, you know, as a, as a teacher, like I'm on a training cruise, you know, he's like kind of justifying it. And then eventually he's like, you know, he just straight up says like, Kirk, you, you assume that I have an ego to bruise. Like I have no ego about this. And, and, and you know, I, I think you make a good point about how really it is a extension of the lessons learned in the first one. So, I mean, 
it really is like Kirk, meanwhile, is, you know, he's trying to do the right thing and be polite about, you know, requesting control and everything. And Spock is, you know, kind of being like he's being a buddy. He's being a friend, like, you know, because the previous Spock would have been like super cold and not necessarily approach the conversation as a friend. And here and now he is where he's like, listen, we know this is what you want. We're both on the same page. It's not going to hurt if you do it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And and of course, again, this is the first part of that. That and it's like, you know, it is basically like, you know, you, I always I, I am and always shall be your friend. And that's like, again, their relationship at this point. They are friends. They are good friends. Um, and just, you know, Kirk, and Spock realizes like Kirk is the still, you know, he wants the ship. He's the best man for the ship. And I'm here to assist him in whatever way I can. Um, and so with this young crew of trainees and some of the original crew as well, they're off to find out what's going on with the regular one and the Genesis device. Which we eventually also get the 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 introduction scene, which I which also gets to your thing from the last movie where it's like how again McCoy is part of the medical officer, like the medical bay, but like is always involved in these conversations because of uh you know Kirk is his buddy. Right, right. Because you get this whole thing where they, you know, um they're trying to convict they're trying to contact Regula and he's coming, you know, like Kirk's like they're either unwilling to respond or unable to respond, and, and Kirk's like take away Genesis. Like, why would, why would she say that? And then, you know, obviously Kirk's like, Spock's like, I wouldn't, I would have a better hypothesis if I knew what Genesis was. And so, and then he's like, have a, you know, he's like, you know, Uhura, have a Dr. McCoy meet me in my quarters. Like basically it's like, come on, McCoy, you're involved in this too. I need your advice. And, and, and I, I did like the story aspect of the fact that Kirk is that high ranking of an officer. I, I don't know. That was just kind of like, so maybe it's just because I'm a little too, like used to modern star trek where you know it's just younger kirk and it's always like he's always just brash and he's like what's going on whereas like this one it's like yeah it's kirk and you know he actually has authority where he would know things that maybe not everybody else knows right and so i like i like that aspect of it so they go to watch this recording of carol marcus you know with the retina scan and everything and and it basically sort of showcases what genesis is it's this project to basically terraform you know in theory planets to be livable and create life and food you know to help just continue to spread out like you know population supply and food supply and everything like that and the idea is they've done you know some rounds of testing in the lab they went to an underground area at least kirk surmises that they have and the eventual plan is to create a device that they can you know basically bomb a planet with to terraform it into like a paradise and obviously mccoy immediately like goes to like the the very human idea of like you know if you use this on a planet that already had life it would overwrite the planet and you know just like this whole kind of conversation I think it's very interesting, especially where the movie goes, because you have like, you know, Spock doing the like analytical thing about it. And then McCoy being the the human about it was like, you know, you know, it's like, yeah, like you like Spock's like, yeah, it would, you know, and in theory, it's always been, you know, throughout history, it's always been easier to uh, destroy than create. And, you know, McCoy's just response like now we can do both. God created the earth in seven days, but watch out. Genesis will do it in six minutes. And then 
just this moment where where Spock. I, I, love, I love that bit, that Bones bit, like his like his old sales pitch, like he's doing the commercial for Genesis. Right, he's doing his commercial for Genesis, and then we get this moment where like Spock's like like you must like control your more human elements, you know, your more human brashness, McCoy, and is it's like you green blooded inhuman, and it's just like about to go into this racist tirade, just like you know this racist insult on Spock. Which I isn't it, isn't it funny that like like you it you never really like register that as like it's always like the thing with aliens like when somebody calls like an alien like a weird blue alien you never consider that like or you never register that as like a racist thing to right. say to an alien but like I, I lo- yeah go ahead yeah sorry no go ahead right. well, I was just gonna say I love this because of uh spock's reaction where he just gives the 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 patented vulcan eyebrow the spock eyebrow where he's like really like you're going that way but then i also love it in relation to what happens at the end of the movie like i love sort of this same thing where it's like even in this most heated moment like later like mccoy like you know literally is like spock you can't go into that room you're gonna die like listen it's suicide like that you know that he's still they're still friends it's just a heated moment and obviously it's like you know Preferably, McCoy shouldn't be racist, but it's still like just a little moment of, you know, showcasing that like, yes, like there's a little heat there, but they're all like this part of this crew and they're all a family still, you know, and it's, it's something that doesn't, you know, you know, and and that's, you know, it was just an extension of like what McCoy's and Spock's relationship was in the show. And I think was some of the most underrated stuff in the show was just like McCoy's sort of fascination with Spock and sort of him poking fun at like sort of Spock's stoicness that they're, they're, they're kind of buddies in that sense. But I just love how that scene kind of plays, especially once you know where the, where the end of the movie goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, then we're getting to the big reveal of Khan to Spock that are sorry to Kirk where they're in, in uh, contact with Reliant. Reliant is, you know, lying about how their communications are there. Uh, obviously Khan and his crew, have taken over as as earlier in the movie uh our first little sense of of uh Khan's true um obsession where his his first time his his buddy his like first in command is like you have genesis we don't need to why are we going after kirk and you know he, him quoting like he tests me he tests me and i shall have him like that whole sort of like you know evoking straight up like moby dick and 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 all that sort of stuff uh but we get this big you know fight and again, just sort of this is the stuff that you love about Kirk is just sort of like him stalling with Khan. Khan, the big reveal that Khan's the one behind this and, and Kirk's reaction, like the big like, you know, coming in the camera, like raising up, uh, you know, Khan's demand. It's like, you know, I'm going to take you and kill you and, you know, d- destroy your ship. But only if I, I will spare your crew if you give me information on Genesis. And then just a little again, little moments here where Kirk, you know, is basically like, Savic, bring up the uh, console, the Reliant on the computer. Reliance console. It's like, shh. You know, it's just, I love this. I also love about Star Trek. I love this is sort of like how they have to be kind of quiet, like in this video conference thing. It's like Zoom now, really. They're just doing like very future Zoom. But I well, always like- th- Then there's also the, the famous keep nodding as if I'm giving you instructions. Like yes. The Spock, the, right. And really, yes, really like good. keep going. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, I mean, but him, the moment I was thinking is like, he has to take out the glasses that McCoy gave him in the earlier in the movie. Mm-hmm. I also love this. Just it's, you know, it's again, it's not an acceptance of his age. Cause that's even through the end of the movie, he really, you know, it takes it in the movie to get to that point. But there's that point where he looks and hesitates at the glasses and he's like, 
damn. And he has to put them on. Like he's still like upset that he has to use these glasses, even though it's, it's here good for the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I thought I was going to say something about that moment, but yeah, no, I got nothing. Well, you got the, you got the, 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 here it comes con. It's coming through now con. <laughs> now, Mr. Spock. Just, oh, and cause it's also, again, just Maltabon's acting and his reactions here where it's like when, when they, when they hack into his console and the shields are lowered, it's like the guy's like, their shields are lowering. And like immediately like con's like horrified look. It's just like, well, raise them. Like I just, I just find it funny that at the end of the day, the only real power that the villain has in the film is that he just kind of gets the jump on everybody. Yes, because even like when faced with like you know Kirk, like you know, there's some things that he's able to kind of like wiggle his way. Like you know, he's a competent guy and he's able to figure certain things out. But like Kirk and crew are able to like just dupe him just as much. Right, but then that's <laughs> and that's but this is like signature Kirk. This is like. This is like the Kirk that we see in the scene is like the best version of like the best of the original series Kirk. When when Kirk's like bullshitting his way out of stuff and like stalling for time against like weird alien races and stuff. Like this is the Kirk that like you know people fell in love with on the original series. And I, again, it's like Kirk, like you know, Kirk can be a character that's easily warped, especially like you know the third season where he becomes more of the womanizer and more of like the fight guy. But this is the Kirk that like is the commander of the enterprise that like he's doing the like, yeah, just keep, you know, keep nodding himself and giving you instructions and like having to explain the Savic, like there, there are reasons that regulations are in place and like just trying to like stall con in any way he can. This is like what Kirk's best at. And I love watching Shatner, like be this version of Kirk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah. And then, you know, again, the, the, but the, again, the, the way that the film is paced is so well, because as soon as like they kind of like escape, there's sort of like them taking the damage assessment on the ship. Um, you know, one of uh, Scotty's uh, you know proteges, you know, is is ba- gravely injured and dies, and they they eventually reach regular one. Who who in in uh, originally was supposed to be his nephew? Yes, yes, it was originally supposed to be his nephew. Um, and those but, did- I, but but one of the things I did like about that was that even though they don't do the big death until the end, you know, obviously there's the joke about red shirts and everything. The fact that like there was a moment to show like the fact that there were all these like other expendable crew people who were either grave gravely injured or dead was it was just like a nice little moment. It's a reminder of like the stakes, right? It's like a mm-hmm. simple reminder of just like, you know. Uh, you know, because even like the motion picture, like there was never really nobody other than Ilya, no one ever like, you know, died. And, you know, it was just like showcasing like sort of or the Klingons at the beginning of the movie, I guess, died too. But this is a real showcase of just like, yeah, like, no, the there's a real toll here. And, and it, it just drives Kirk to like figure out exactly what's going on with Khan, which they find out, you know, they get the regular one. There's no response from Carol, Marcus or anybody on the ship. So. Um, this is another great character moment for Savick when she makes up a regulation to like force her way onto the the landing party, where you know and Kirk's like, all right, fine. Like he's like, there's no such regulation. She just gives him a look. He's like, all right, come on, you're you're coming with us. Come on. Um, yeah, and that and that's like one of those aspects about the Savick character that I, I I do did like, and I think that's what kind of pushes her into like a like a really fun role is like she's just so curiously fascinated in a very Vulcan-like way 
with the whole like because she's like like because her kind of like little journey is like she's just she's almost like the 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 early day spock that is catching up to how things run in star trek like yes. at least like it with like the crew of the enterprise where and she's I'll, like uh, interesting all right yeah I'll, I'll go on the mission and i'll loosely like go by protocol yeah because that's what that's what we do okay let's do that so i and, I, and I thought that was fun i really do think like she you know it's like an interesting thing because like she does view kirk as like a mentor and she does try to kind of model herself a little bit after like what kirk does like and that's why she's so endlessly fascinated with like Kirk and wants to know like you know his ways of doing things. That he well, and, then, and then there's also like the funny thing where all of what she's doing, like she never wastes a minute to ask about the Kobayashi Maru and yeah. like all, all that. Because and there's also that little bit where she's like, this Kirk fellow, like he's so human and he's very odd, but yet somehow he beat the Kobayashi Maru. So there must be some sort of like big secret to this and then the fact that like ultimately it's like oh he cheated yeah you can even tell with her she's like what <laughs> yeah uh so they get down the regular and find all these horrifically dead bodies of most of the regular crew um and also find uh captain tyrell and Chekhov, who seemingly are you know been left there and, and to give exposition about like what happened to them to kirk uh, eventually they find out that the transporters allow stuff into it transport into the planet itself, this dead planet that has no life on it. Uh, eventually, you know, they, you know, beam down after conferring with Spock hours may seem like days that'll come back in a few moments, uh, but they eventually get down there. Kirk gets into a fight with his son, um, which I thought was also a great moment where he realizes like, where's Carol Mark? Where's Dr. Marcus? I'm Dr. Marcus. And then mm. just like, Carol coming in, but then it's eventually revealed. Oh no, Tyrell and Chekhov were actually still under Kirk Khan's uh, power. I love this. And and rewatching the film, I almost, that was an element that I actually almost forgot because I was like, oh yeah, it's like I guess they they are not mind controlled anymore. And then the, the, the happens. I'm like, oh wait, no, I forgot. Ah, yeah. Um, great sequence too, where it's like so. We get a, you know, Ty- Tyrell is like, you know, you've had the Genesis device, sir. And I just love, again, Maltabon's great. He just like, he gives this little like, oh, like he's like, you know, holds his head, like fingers to his head. He's like, first things first. Remember, you got to kill Captain Kirk. Like, he's like, come on, like, just do it already. And then Tyrell eventually like resists and shoots himself and phases himself and sacrifices himself. And then the other eel like is like scared so it escapes from Chekhov and the bloody ear that was again the middle one not the Fangoria one that was like really bloody from the behind the scenes I saw uh, but you know eventually escapes they phaser it and then we get the classic moment probably um, maybe the film's second most famous moment in many ways which is the whole thing it was like you gotta come after me Khan you heard the quote you heard it you gotta come after me no I'm gonna buried alive buried alive and and what's funny is that it really does own its moment as like the one bit of like shatner overacting because it really is the only time in the movie where he instantly dials it up to 15 right like because there's like again there's like right before that he's he 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 is still pretty like like tame and then out of nowhere he's just like (laughs) just the face is so good um because even again, it's like like there's little moments throughout the film, but it's like that's truly like Shatner, Shatnering at its best, and I love it. 
And what it's, makes it more hilarious is like he definitely knows he's going to be able to get out of there. <laughs> yes. But he has to sell it for Khan. Khan! That, that's so funny. That's so funny to me. It's so it's just so iconic. And it's a moment that is like so ridiculous but so perfect for the movie. Like I would not that and, and, I wouldn't and, want and, that moment any other way. But also juxtaposed with an incredibly quiet, poignant scene where it's like right before they like see like, you know, the core of the planet and everything where him and Carol are just kind of like just having like just a just a brief conversation about aging and everything. And I was actually struck by how quiet of a scene it was. And yeah. once again, I, I'm not I'm not one to lament like, oh, you know, the, not doing scenes like this anymore. But one thing I have actually said is like, you know, a lot of movies could use more just silent moments like that. Mm-hmm. And so it, it was just very nice to kind of like have a and moment it's just like rem- that. A moment like that is just a reminder of like how good F a performer like, you know, Shatner actually is. You know, because I think people get caught up in like the Shatner acting. He's kind of embraced that style, especially kind of in his more modern years. But like, that's one of those scenes where he's with Carol and like they have great chemistry. Honestly, I really like their chemistry together on screen. But just again, just talking about like their, their son and just a reflection on time and, and where the where the times have gone. And like, you know, a man I haven't seen in 15 years is trying to kill me and just like all that sort of stuff. It's just really great stuff. And then eventually Carol, you know, it's just like, whatever, I'm going to show you something that's going to make you feel like the world was new and brings him into the big Genesis cave, which is really beautiful. Really well done. Yeah, I, I, I like that scene. I think it's a very tasteful way of showing what Genesis could do. And, and I just like the imagery of it as well. I yeah. know that Myers was a little bit disappointed. I thought he I think he said he wanted to do something a little bit more. He didn't think it did it justice, but I actually think it, it worked out. I think it definitely works for, for what the movie. Um, and also, and also because the way the movie ends with it being blown up and essentially a planet being created. Uh, right. That's what, is that what happens? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's just kind of nice that like, this is like the test of it. So you can see what it is, what the what potential it for it is again, like again, sort of again, taking the, the good of what, the future of Star Trek has and then, and, and then contrasting and it, it to what Khan wants to possibly do with it. And it adds a sense of like hope to the proceeding. So no, so it's never too grim. Mm-hmm. Like that's the thing. There's a certain, and I think that's why they always say swashbuckling because there's a certain amount of just fun and levity to the entire film, even in its dark moments, which right. make it like, and I think it's also watchable. That's also added by just how proud Carol of is of the work. You know, like she she mentions, like like I like he's like, oh, I thought these tunnels were Genesis, and he's like, you know, oh, this this took like, you know, space crews and suits ten months to make. What we did in there, we did in a day. Like she's, I, I think that also helps the Carol Marcus character. It's just her just devotion to this project and her proudness of it and her proudness of her son. Oh, and then she has the line, "Do you?" It's like, "Do I know how to cook or what?" And that's just another little nice little human relationship touch that right because I, like. I think it also again it's like you can see i think there's an element where it's just like you could definitely see like how these you know kirk fell for this woman like i really think you, you can see it because i think this is what kind of kirk attaches himself to he likes sort of these types of people she's like you know very proud of her work just as kirk is very proud of like you know the way that he handles his his life yeah definitely uh so eventually this yes this is where we talked about this is a reveal that kirk uh cheated on the kobayashi maru uh, by you know 
going into like the computer and altering the test so that he could win because he does not believe in the no win scenario. He reveals earlier that his conversation with Spock about how the enterprise would take two days to get back is actually two hours by the book. <laughs> I just, cause even Spock is just like, if we were to go by the book as Mr. Savick would, you know, uh, you know, hours would seem like days. And then it's like funny. It's like, of course that's what he meant, but you know, no, uh, no encoded messages on a uh, monitor channel. You lied, as you mentioned before. And then they get ready for the big battle, right? And this is where uh, Meyer's desire to make this very naval is so big, where there's mm-hmm. like buzzing lights and people running around and gates coming up and photon torpedoes being loaded in to, to things, goading Khan into the nebula, which is their plan. Again, just, like, just so many... I love like when Nimoy gets these like little moments where they get to use these uh, human like uh, idiom- idioms where it's like, why are we going into Nebula? It'll, it'll like, you know, Savik's like having the same question. Like, well, we have to go. Oh, I thought that was great. Hold on. Yeah. Finish what you were saying. Or it's just like Savik's like, well, if we go into the Nebula, our seals will be useless. And he's like, sauce for the goose, Mr. Savik. The odds will be even. <laughs> and so just again, those little moments. Um, well, it's just the fact that like, you know, like Kirk says it in his way, and then you know her being all Vulcan, she's like, "What?" And then, then Spock says, "It's like it, it's what it, this means." <laughs> it's like I, I just kind of like that moment, and I, and I, and again, I know I mentioned it already, but just like the whole, you lied, I exaggerated. It's just yes. kind of like just such a nice little, like you know, Spock also you know has grown as a character as right well. he's he's embraced that sort of quirky and human side like he knows mm-hmm. like that's you know part of what the motion picture was about but he's like knows like that's a big part of his journey throughout the original series into this moment and of course we talked about the big goading of Khan into the nebula where yeah so they're racing the nebula to be even Khan's, you know Khan's first in command starts slowing down because and Khan's like what's going on you know explains it and then Kirk's just like, they're slowing down. And Kirk immediately knows, get me on the comms. Get me LinkedIn, Uhura. And then he's just like, I'm still here, Khan. And then just the most childish insult where he's like, I am laughing at the superior intellect. Loved it. it yeah, that, that, that's super it's great. It's like, full power! And then Khan just leaps up and just goes full speed into the nebula. Um, and it's just, again, the three, again, the three-dimensional sort of play here where they talk about how there's like, you know, which is funny because I think Meyer talked about that he wanted to, you know, use that kind of three-dimensional space in a way that, like, you couldn't, like, you know, the other Star Trek films really don't, where they're, they're, you're in space and it's really easy for you to maneuver up and down and be above and below ships and stuff like that. So uh, the Nebula sequence is just fun with the visuals and just, like, them going back and forth between everything. Khan really realizing that things are going to shit on his ship where, like, you know, his first in command gets killed and everything like that. Uh, so then, you know, as, uh, we get to this moment, we get this big battle, which again, I think is, you know, fun, fun little space battle works very well for through that moment in terms of like the big little thing at the end. But then the big moment happens where Khan decides as one final F you to Kirk to activate the Genesis device to ensure that his nemesis will be dead. Cause he knows that there's no way that they can escape from that. Um, which again, I also love that in in all the uh, you know splendor and and 
optimism of the future that the Genesis device doesn't have a shut off maneuver just in case you accidentally activated it in any ways, you know, like David's like Kirk's son is just like, we'll be aboard and shut it off. He's like, you can't. And then they're like, okay, shit. Like Scotty, we got to get out of here or we're all dead. Sulu like full speed as much as you can. And it's just the immediate moment of Spock looking up and realizing what he has to do here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought that was like a nice, just kind of like little quiet, subtle moment that is like blink and you miss it. And, And I liked how that was handled. Uh, before I get to all the stuff with Spock, I do want to mention one of my favorite things about the ending of Khan's character is like he does the whole thing where he's all bloodied and he's dying. And, you know, with Hell's Heart, I spit at D again, like, you know, referencing, you know, uh, Moby Dick directly. I love that he dies thinking that he's won. I love that there's no moment where like he sees the enter- like there's no moment where like he sees the NRI warp speeding like no like like and then he blows up no like he literally like dies thinking that he has succeeded that like this whole vengeance mission has been you know the death of his entire genetically engineered race of people like the the destruction of, of everything that he's ever known was all successful because he finally got Kirk love it. Mm-hmm. Love it so much. I just love that that's the ending to Khan's character. But back on the ship, like, obviously, they're trying to get the warp speed. The ship's so damaged that they can't repair anything. Mr. Scott's basically incapacitated. McCoy's down in the engine room. Spock gets down there. He immediately starts going into, and this is the ref- moment I referenced earlier, where I love, like, even though they were heated, and he said the green-blooded and human thing earlier, like, McCoy literally, like, grabs Spock. He's like, are you crazy? You're going to poison yourself if you go in there. Like, you know, there's no way I'm letting you in there, Spock. Like, you know, and then Spock does the whole thing where he's like, all right, I guess you're right. What's the status of uh, what's the status of Mr. Scott? And then, you know, McCoy's like, well, he's pretty bad. And then he immediately Vulcan neck pinches him to be like, I'm sorry, doctor. I don't have time to think logically. So, yeah, or the the line specifically, because I, I took note of it. I liked it a lot where in another kind of very subtle hint at the evolution of the character is like, sorry, doctor, I have no I have no time to explain this logically. And if you know Spock, he always has time to explain something logically. It's right. like his thing. So the fact that like, he is doing such like a selfless act, which is very like a human thing to do with like no desire to really explain himself thoroughly. Uh, it's just a nice kind of like little moment. Yeah. So then we get the whole sequence of, you know, again, Spock going into this very radiated room to basically fix up the, the warp engines as everybody's like, no, get out of there. No, like there's just everybody immediately knows that it's bad news, but Spock succeeds in fixing the warp engines and they're like, Oh, get online at the last minute. And you know, Kirk's just like, doesn't realize Spock is up there. He's like, good job, Mr. Scott. Like I knew you could do it. Like get out of here. Sulu warp speed as fast as you can. They warp speed out with the big explosion that was filmed at 2,500 frames a second. And then they come back and see this planet forming. And you know, it's like, it's beautiful. And, And again, Carol and David are looking so proudly upon this thing and Kirk boops his little communication device, which I've always loved just when he can just patch and just press a button is just like immediately Mr. Scott. Great job. And it's McCoy. And he's like, you better get down here. Hurry. And I love this too. Cause it's in the same way that Spock immediately looked up and knew what he had to do. 
Kirk looks over the Spock's chair, sees it empty, and immediately knows what that means. And immediately starts rushing down. And again, the way this is edited is so perfect, where we see this planet forming, and James Horner's sort of sweeping score comes in, and Kirk's running down these halls as fast as he can. He basically slides down uh, a ladder uh, without touching like most of the rungs, rushes over to Spock, and just get the moment where he's like, no, like we got to get him out of there. He'll die. Scotty and, and Bones are holding him back. And Scotty's just like, he's dead already. And just that moment of just everybody realizing like he's, he's gone. He's not, he's not going to be yeah, here. D- did you love the little moment where like, you know, kind of like a radiation poisoned, uh, 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 Spock gets up and still straightens his uniform. <laughs> Yes, uh, that was such like a that's uh, such like a fun like oh my god come on Spock that's great, but like so like uh, yeah and then obviously on its face the um the uh, the obvious thing to take away from it is like Spock is doing the big hero sacrifice for his friends thus solidifying their relationship. Uh, Kirk is finally experiencing the the costs of like th- this wasn't a complete win, so he's kind of like dealing with his version of the Kobayashi Maru, which is like mm-hmm. a success, but not like a one hundred percent a a success. Right. Like it, if anything, he's losing maybe one of the biggest things in his life. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's a you know it's a beautiful scene and like they you know they purposely echo the scene in the in Spock's chamber from earlier in the movie. Obviously, like I uh, like you know I I am and always shall be your friend. Uh, and of course, another thing that they said earlier was is the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, or the one. Uh, Nimoy just, I think, you know, kills this scene with his irradiated sort of gravelly voice. Um, the moment where he takes off the glove and does the Vulcan hand symbol, live long and prosper. He falls and Kirk falls with him. It's just just a beautiful sort of scene. And it's like a perfectly played death scene between the two. You know, it's just really good. Yeah. Uh, and then we get to the rest of the end of the movie. Spock is sent off uh, in a Forton torpedo. Another amazing line read where, you know, Kirk is given this eulogy. And of all the souls I've met along my travels, his was the most human, mm-hmm. which is just a perfect, just again, with everything you know about the Spock character and just how much he embraces his Vulcan heritage is for, for for you know and how much that's a part of him and how people perceive him and for Kirk to call him the most human person he's ever met is just a beautiful and it says a lot about Kirk it says a lot about Spock as a character um even getting some emotion from Savick here is great the bagpipes that that James Duhon really wanted in the movie which by the way if you played it in that in in, in like that type of room would have probably been unbearable. <laughs> uh, that's all I could think about in that scene. I'm like, oh man, that's that's probably so effing loud. Yeah. And then, yeah, and it's just an emotional moment and you feel it as an audience. You feel the characters and it's set up. So I think one of the other brilliant things about this movie is I think it does function so well as like kind of an introduction to Trek because 
one again it gives you sort of all this exposition of just like the characters enough where it's like if you know a base level of anything about the characters it works but i also think one of the things they do is they make kirk and spock's relationship so likable and spock such a likable character throughout the movie that even when i saw this for the first time and i didn't really have that attachment to spock you're already buying into this emotion you feel with his death because this film just sets up that character to be so entertaining and so lovable and so much fun. And it, it really builds the relationship that he, that Spock has between his characters, uh, especially with Kirk. But again, even I think the McCoy stuff kind of comes into play. So this scene just really plays emotionally. And I think this movie just does so well at presenting these characters. If you were a first time, excuse me, a first time viewer. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely um, just good, just good character work all yeah, around. Yeah, very well. And I actually want another scene. So there's there's the last couple of scenes in the movie, a scene that I didn't actually appreciate the first time I watched it, and then the more that I've kind of considered the themes and the, the way that mirrors is this conversation between Kirk and his son. Me too. I I I don't think this scene ever registered for me until this rewatch, really, because it really is sort of. Again, Kirk dealing with, you know, the fact that he hasn't dealt with this sort of death, that he's cheated death, you know, and he's, he's you know, laughed at it, basically. And, and anytime he's seen death, it's always been like a red shirt or a villain or like whatever. Like, you know, he's always kind of been able to maneuver his friends out of it. And now that he's dealing with this, you know, it really is sort of the Kirk character coming to fruition because it's also that moment where... He's trying, you know, he's still trying to read this tale of two cities that Spock gave him, but now his his glasses are broken from the fight. You know, he has a clacked lens, so even that's like not possible for him really. Um, and then when his son comes in and is just realizing that, like, you know, I was wrong about you, and, and just sort of again, it's one of these situations where within this movie itself, it's like almost Kirk giving that new lease on life, which leads into the last movie in the movie, where it's like he has lost, you know, his best friend. But there is a new sense of like now he knows his son and this sort of again, this kind of life and death in the cycle where it's like, you know, this new planet has been born, but he kind of gets this relationship with the son, which is another aspect of like a life that he's never known. The life that he created is now, you know, giving him this acceptance and telling you I'm proud to be your son. And it's just it really is like a, a sneakily beautiful moment. It really is. And yeah, and, and I think it's handled, too, because, like, throughout the movie, like, you, you're kind of led to believe that he may just simply not know that. I mean, you're straight up told that, like, at least from, you know, the audience perspective, that he wasn't told. Right, Carol said that, that he, like, yeah. he doesn't he doesn't know. Yeah, but, like, the whole kind of talking about Kirk and the way he does could be just, like, his way of just, like, denying him as his father. And, like, this is kind of, like, his little journey is like, oh, yeah, he's, he's, you're not a bad guy. And I actually, like, because, it, again, like, kind of what I go back to, like, Kirk is being, like, a, he's very human and, you know, it's he's flawed in the way that, you know, he's not necessarily practicing what he preaches. But what he preaches is still good, like, leadership. And, yes. and it's, it's, it's good qualities. And, you know, what I think his son is just trying to tell me, he's like, hey, well, you know, and, and it, and, this isn't something I thought about until just now. It's like, well, you know, it is kind of like, even though you are, you know, you are dealing with this whole age thing, 
there is still something you can learn. So like, that's kind of a nice little element too. Right. Yeah. And just, again, just the sort of thing where it's like, you know, you can, sometimes it's good to take your own advice. Right. Um, and then the very last scene where they look upon the Genesis planet and we get the sort of the last, uh, you know, captain's log, I think the only captain's log of the film, if I remember where he's talking about like, you know, I'll have to play, you know, visit this place again. You know, McCoy says one of the other films, very famous lines. So, you know, he's not dead as long as we find a way to remember him, uh, which I've definitely said at a funeral before. I've definitely used I've definitely stolen that um, <laughs> purposely and got very applauded for it. So good on me. Hey. Um, and then Kirk says it's just, you know, says some poetic words and just says, you know, there's something that was Rock trying to tell me. How do you feel? How do you feel, Captain? Young. I feel young. Mm-hmm. And then this leads into maybe my favorite, maybe moment in a Star Trek movie ever is, you know, when they go into the planet and, you know, they see Spock's like a uh, kind of funeral pod. And then we pivot in, and then zoom out into space and in the stars. And then it's Spock doing the space, the final frontier. Now, this is 100% thematically and spiritually supposed to, in a way, represent Spock, you know, dying and moving into whatever lies after beyond death, right? Like, that's 100% what this is supposed to be. That's how I read it. Yeah. Think, I th- think about it. Like, it, 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 it starts with there, and then it goes up into, like, the stars, and it's, like, space, the final frontier, going where no man has gone before as they go through the stars. It's all done through Spock's point of view. The whole movie has been about, like, age and moving on beyond your time. And the fact that Star Trek as a whole is all about exploring the great beyond that's where I stand with the end. Right. And at least that's what I took out of it. And, and I absolutely fell in love with it upon this rewatch. Well, I can tell you that it's a really good interpretation, but I can tell you that was not their intention with it. No, no, no. Okay. Listen, I, 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 this is also the same movie that has remember. So I know that it's not like, right. Yeah. But, but, it's, but it's, it's, that it's, being it's, said, like, I'm just talking about like from, from the, like, the, from the just the content of the movie itself as a singular piece right like i think thematically it still works in that way yeah um i'll tell you a funny thing about that 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 shot at the end was like a last minute edition because it was notes from preview audiences like they want a little more hope at the end so they wanted to show like spock had landed on the planet you know and then maybe they go back at some point which you know, well they... that's how i i that's how i like to take it I think it's a really good. I, I like your interpretation, though. I really like that. I've never thought about it that way, but I think that's a really good way to, to think about it. And that's a discussion. That's it's our review, our little, our, our little going through of Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Just, I, and I think it's like I got to emphasize that I think the 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 thematics of life and death that are thrown throughout the movie and shown, because even like you know, even you can go into how Khan's major motivation part of it is not just revenge on Kirk it's revenge on Kirk because his wife died you know like that's another thing where Kirk you know Khan changed fundamentally when like he lost a good portion of his crew including the 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 woman that like you know he helped almost help him take over the enterprise originally like 
there's a lot of stuff that's hidden throughout this movie about like life and death and age and and finding your place and and using your abilities to even it, in this age it's just so in the example in the in the example of like if you want to make a direct correlation between Khan and and um and kirk there's a little bit of like you know what are you real like the elements that you just like grab hold to and like you know you don't like Khan's all like you know he's not going to forgive like this past transgression that like kirk made on him and kirk is all about like you know moving beyond like you know what you know the what he was very precious about so you know and Khan, uh you know is confronted with that as well it's like you have what you you need like why do you have to like maintain this grudge and mm -hmm. so there's a little bit of that going on too right there's just so much thematic richness and character richness and just really well done storytelling throughout this entire movie it really is among the best like sci-fi movies ever made and definitely at the top of the star trek list for sure yeah no i mean it, it's um just just great work all around loved rewatching it it's a it's a knockout film yeah uh before i go i just want to i'll talk about the aftermath a little bit but last thing i like to mention anytime con con comes across i always love to remind everybody that con is from the year 1996 <laughs> uh I, I just love anytime like a show in the future talks about like a period that we like have lived through now as like like in Star Trek is like the nineties were like the eugenics wars and world war three and like super, superhuman, like super genetically engineered humans, like took over half the planet. It's like always fascinating to me. All right. So wrath of Khan, uh, eventually released on June 4th, 1982. Um, and did break another, uh, opening weekend gross record with 14 million. It earned $78,912 in the United States with for a total of $97 million worldwide. Now, this was much less, technically speaking, than the motion picture because uh, the motion picture, remember, had made $139 million, So this was didn't break the $100 uh, million mark, but Paramount was extremely happy with these results, mostly because the budget was much lower, so they made a larger profit in comparison to the motion pictures original about 50 million, including all the stuff from phase two. Uh, originally this film again, only cost about $12 million. So they, they made a much larger profit and there was a bigger uh, confidence now in the star Trek franchise. That's really one of the legacies of this movie. Obviously when we talk about the legacy of this movie, it's regarded as one of the greatest sci-fi motion pictures ever made widely loved by critics at the time, by Star Trek fans, by non-Star Trek fans. It was basically all around very well regarded. But really what that meant was that this is the film that basically said the Star Trek franchise is here to stay. That this is the film where it's like we had this canceled TV series that kind of got this first motion picture that was successful, though again, not as quite as much as everybody wanted. But Wrath of Khan is the one where it's like Star Trek became star trek and became a franchise out of this movie and that every movie after this and again all these series now that are on paramount plus and picard and discovery and all the stuff they're doing now with the franchise is almost thanks to the wrath of khan and what the wrath of khan meant uh to the series uh and, and in many ways these are the versions of the characters of spock and kirk and mccoy that people became most familiar with mm-hmm 
So I guess that's very much it. Yeah, good stuff. I mean, yeah. So next time on the Star Trek side of things, uh, we got to do a little search and will. We yeah. I mean, now the Spock's gone. I guess uh, we got to go look for him. We have to look for a movie that has a first-time director in Leonard Nimoy. We have to look for a movie that is Paramount's very much continued love for Star Trek. And we got to search for Spock because that is the next movie on our countdown for Star Trek. Star Trek 3, The Search for Spock, which I am very, that's one you haven't seen. I think no, right? I haven't seen it. No, I am so. very excited to get your thoughts uh, about it. Do you know anything about it at all? No, I, I really don't. Um, right. I, I can't say. I think maybe I know a few. Ca- yeah, this is the is this the one Christopher Lloyd's in? Yes, yeah. that's basically all I know about yeah. it. I'll be very curious to see your thoughts. But next episode will not be Star Trek uh, Three. It will be another King Kong movie, and I am. Uh, ready to announce the last time on the King Kong episode, we said we were there's a little debate. I put it out on Twitter and asked you guys for your feedback on what film we should do next. If we should skip ahead to Kong Scott Island or continue on our path. And uh, there was a lot of passion for us to continue doing these films in order. Um, so that is the decision we're going to make. So later this month, you are going to hear our thoughts on the rather obscure direct sequel to King Kong, uh, Son of Kong, which I'm very curious to talk about. I've looked a little bit into it, and I'm very... I think this is one we'll have a little fun with, I feel like. Sounds good. All right, I'll do some plug skis real quick. Get the plug skis out of the way. Uh, Bonzillapod at gmail.com if anybody wants to email us about anything ever. Uh, Twitter.com slash Bonzilla007. Still the best way to reach us. Facebook.com slash Bonzilla007. Like and subscribe. iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I said at the beginning, I want to say at the end, to uh, our Star Trek and our King Kong episodes have been some of the most successful episodes we've ever had. So once again, uh, I'm so thankful that you guys are on board and I hope you guys are enjoying it. So it's fun. Cool. Well, can't wait. Until next time. Con!